What's up, everybody, and welcome back to the Neanderthal Society Podcast. On today's episode, we're going to be talking to Matt Larson. Matt is an old, old, old friend of mine, somebody that I've known since I was just a young punk rock kid uh, coming up in the East Bay scene. We met when we were both 15 years old in 1997. Matt went on to book some legendary and epic <laughs> Grange Hall shows uh, in Danville. And um, he also put out a record on his label, One Scene Records. It was an All Bets Off Sworn Vengeance split. There was a little bit of controversy behind it, and we get into that. He also uh, kind of took the reins with Breakout Records at the tail end of the record label. And for those that don't know, Breakout Records was the quintessential Barry Hardcore label in the late 90s. They released records from Redemption 87, Hoods, Sworn Vengeance, Low Life, and more. So it was really awesome to have a, a for real deep dive, one-on-one conversation with an old friend and just get into some heavy, heavy, heavy Barry Hardcore history. Talking about the label, we talked about East Bay Menace Records, which was something that was a record label that was deeply influential, informative for the both of us. We talk about some unfortunate stuff like white supremacy at shows in the late 90s. Uh, We talk about the Salt Lake hardcore scene, talk about Portland, talk about being an iron worker and getting impaled. Um, (laughs) we talked about a lot, a lot of stuff, so be sure to check that out. Matt was, uh, kind enough to give me the honor and privilege to contribute and work on the brand new Breakout Records Instagram page. So if you haven't seen that yet, um, and you're curious about NorCal and Barry Hardcore History, please go give that a follow. That's at Breakout Records Hardcore on Instagram. So go follow that page. Um, let's see. There's a lot of stuff coming up, but I'm not going to get into it just yet. So for now, I just want to say thanks to everybody for listening. Thanks to everybody for following and supporting Neanderthal. Uh, thanks to everybody for following on Instagram at Neanderthal Society. Website still on the way. Um, that's going to be Neanderthal-Society.com. The Depop is up. Uh, fear not. We're going to be putting stuff in the store soon. Um, and the Patreon is still on the way. So stay tuned for all that stuff. So I want to say thanks to Matt for setting aside the time. I want to say thanks to Martin for... Um, really coming through on this episode. Unfortunately, we had a tiny bit of technical difficulties. And for the first time ever, we actually had to edit an episode. So my apologies to the listeners. That's not something that we're trying to do, but it was something that was necessary for this episode. But fortunately, Matt, as I said, is an old good friend of mine. So he will be coming back and we will be talking again. So, um, Thanks again to everybody for listening. Thanks again to everybody for following. Thanks to Matt. Thanks to Martin. Shout out Pete. Shout out Colby. And enjoy the episode. All right. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Neanderthal Society podcast. Today, we're talking to an old friend. 
Matt Larson. What's up, Matt? What's up? Thanks for having me. Absolutely, man. How are we doing? Uh, I'm doing fantastic. Living the dream. Just don't know if it's a good one. <laughs> how's uh, how's Oregon life? Oregon life is great. Uh, I mean, the outdoors here are fantastic. Doing a lot of mountain bike riding. Uh, Portland's got a good vibe. I mean, it feels like, honestly, it feels like the Bay Area in the 90s. I mean, that whole joke about the Portlandia thing about it's where young people go to retire is kind of true. It's uh, <laughs> it's a cool place, though. I mean, there's a lot good music scene. There's a lot to do up here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so what brought you up to Portland? Work. Uh, we'll, we'll get into that later, but I had left the Bay Area and I moved to Salt Lake City and i was an iron worker out there for 12 years and got into safety management uh after after a severe work accident i had i got fucking impaled with a pry bar that went through the side of my ribs and came Jesus. out my shoulder so uh i ended up leaving the trade and becoming a, a safety manager and the company i started working for uh, ended up sending me out to Portland for work. It was supposed to be for three to six months and I'm, I'm still here. Haven't left. Wow. That's a wild story. Well, can we take it back? Yeah. Let's go back. All right. So you grew up in San Ramon, right? So I didn't grow up in San Ramon. Um, I went to junior high and high school in San Ramon. I had actually, where were you born in, I was born in uh, Southern California. I grew up in North Long Beach. Okay. And how long so, were you there? I was there until I was in sixth grade. Uh, we ended up moving up to the Bay Area, I think, the year after the L.A. riots. All right. So that would have been 92 or so? Yeah, that sounds about right. Okay. Sorry, I'm not, I'm not great on the exact years, but yeah, I was in uh I was in 6 And you were born in 82. I was born in 82. So we're the same and age. So yeah. Yeah, 6th grade, I think 6th grade would have been 93, 94. Somewhere around there. But yeah. Yeah, yeah definitely. So I moved up there and completely different world. I mean, North Long Beach, the neighborhood I lived in, I wouldn't say it was a hard neighborhood. Uh, but we were definitely near some really bad areas. And after the LA riots, the neighborhood I lived in, I mean, it, it went downhill and got rough fast. There was a lot of gang problems and to go from there to move to, to San Ramon, uh, anyone who's from the Bay knows that that's just as fucking white picket fence as you can get. And it was, it weirded me out. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely a major, uh, transition. What kind of stuff were you into as a kid? Like, uh, were you, were you playing sports or what, what was your deal? So when I was a kid, I was, I was all about baseball. That was my thing. I mean, I did all sorts of sports, but I mean, that's what I continue to do year after year. Growing up uh, in uh, Southern California, were, were you a Dodgers fan or were you a Giants fan, Ace fan? So I was a Dodgers and an Angels fan when I was, uh, when I was a kid. But as soon as I moved to the Bay, I was pretty quick to, to adapt to the A's, you know, you're kind of, you're kind of at that age where you're not as, uh, not as hardcore about the team. Mm. Um, but yeah, as a kid, I would always go to the angels baseball games. Okay. What was your position? I was an outfielder. Okay. Always the outfielder. I wasn't quick enough to be, uh, 
to be a baseman, but I was a good hitter, a good base dealer. Right on. So, uh, what about, uh, music and, uh, hearing music in the household? Like what was your first exposure to, um, to music in your home and just people in your circle? So music has always been a part of my life. My dad has always been a music lover. Uh, I mean, he would always listen to his old classic rock records. He was a huge Who fan. I mean, he had everything they owned. I mean, I remember him listening to them more than uh, more than anything else I can remember. And he would spend his weekends, you know, after everything was done, he would just put on headphones and put on a record. And he would just sit in the living room and listen to his music. So it had always been a part of my life growing up. Um, when I was really little, I mean, what I was exposed to, in Southern California is, is I listened to a lot of hip hop down there. Uh, cause that was really prevalent and that's what everybody else was listening to. Oh, definitely. That was the whole era of like death row and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And everybody just thought it was the coolest thing because, you know, I lived in long beach and all the kids at school, it's like, Oh, Snoop Dogg's from long beach. So, mm-hmm. so took then, a lot of pride in that. So what was your, what was your shit as far as hip hop? Like what, what were your favorite, um, uh, Do you remember like your first tapes or anything like that? So what I would used to do to get music is I would put, I would put a cassette in the, in the boom box and I would record songs off the radio. And that's how I was getting my music most of the time. And I'd use my allowance money to, to get singles from, from the warehouse near my house, uh, cassette singles. And I remember, I mean, it was just, it was the staples, you know, it was all the death row stuff. Uh, it was, you know, I was a kid, so I had all the cheesy ass fucking shit like crisscross and Debrat as well. Debrat Funkified. <laughs> That's right. Funkified. That's a good one. Or what, what was the other one? Or, um, I rock rough, and, rough and stuff with my Afro puff. Who was that? <laughs> oh, that shit. wasn't the brat. That was, a. Uh, oh dude. Fail. I can't remember. <laughs> I I know the song, but I I can't name. It's who escaping it is. me right now. It's it's on the above the rim soundtrack. I remember that much. Uh, were you were you um beyond hip hop? Were you like starting to hear? Were you listening to alternative? Was was the punk kind of like nineties explosion happening just yet, or it was kind of right before that time? So I didn't start uh, getting interested in in alternative or punk until I moved up to, to the Bay area. And I remember, uh, my first earliest exposure to it was the green day dookie album. I thought that was the coolest thing. Yeah, definitely. That was massive. That was like, for me, like game changer for sure. And the funny thing is about that album is it was my dad who turned me on to it because he he got turned on to that album and thought it was the coolest thing since the Who. No shit. So he he was all about it. That's wild. So we were at that that came out when uh, if we're the same age that was uh, the end of sixth grade for us. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and it was it was a game changer. No, I <laughs> I got a funny story I kind of want to tell um, about getting that tape. But uh, if you don't mind, is that all right? Let's hear it. Yeah. Okay. So basically, sixth grade, uh, we kind of touched on this. Um, well, it's, it'll come out. It'll be out by the time this is out. So yeah, we touched on this on on Dwayne's episode, uh, Dwayne Harris from Allegiance. But um, 
you know, Kurt Cobain had committed suicide in April of 94. And just from my perspective, the way I remember it is there was somewhat of a void in um, just that tail end of what would have been our sixth grade year. Do you recall that? Like, it's kind of like what's next type thing, like no more Nirvana. Like, did you feel like that at all? Or am I tripping? See, I didn't feel like that at all. Cause at the time, all that music was new to me. Gotcha. Uh, well, yeah. I, I definitely, I mean, again, this is my, this is my 12 year old perspective at the time, but I mean, Kurt Cobain k- killing himself was obviously a really big deal and pretty traumatic situation. You know, we don't have to waste too much time on that. Everybody knows what happened, but basically again, that's April 94 by May, June, Green Day was coming out and starting to get some major buzz and like, it was a really big deal in my school. Um, but for me, I went to school in Walnut Creek, which you know where Walnut Creek is. That's not that much different than San Ramon where you're from. But personally, I'm from Concord, which Concord Walnut Creek is like night and day difference. You know? Yeah, like, it was kind of this weird little bubble corridor from San Ramon up to Walnut Creek. Yeah. And then you got above Walnut Creek and it was a different ball game. Yeah, we were a lot more a lot more working class, a lot more blue collar uh town, you know, so my family, you know, whatever, we didn't have a ton of extra money and especially not for the new tape or whatever. You know what I mean? Like my mom was <laughs> money wasn't going for that. So anyway, uh, in my mind, I was like, I need this fucking tape. Like I need this tape, you know? And basically I didn't, I think I had like three, four bucks. Like tapes were what? Like seven bucks back then. Do you remember? They must have been, because I remember, like I said, I was buying singles, and I was spending about $3 to get a single cassette. I mean, in my head, they were like 7 bucks. So in any event, like I didn't have 7 bucks. I went to my brother, my younger brother, Matt, my middle brother, rather, and I was like, yo, dude, we need to get this tape. Like, let's go halves, you know? And he was like, all right, sounds good. He comes back with whatever money he had. We still didn't have enough, you know? So basically, we go to my youngest brother, Noah, who actually and eventually did, you know, he came to punk and hardcore shows. Matt was never really a punk or hardcore kid, but Noah definitely was. But anyway, uh, Noah was like, all right, what's the deal, you know? And like we told him, we're like, yeah, we need a couple a couple more bucks for this tape. He's like, all right, I'll loan it to you. We're like, yeah, there you could be, we'll be three-way owners or we'll pay you back. You pick, you know? And he's like, all right, sounds good. So me and, me and my brother, Matt, we get on our bikes, we ride to the warehouse which is like three and a half miles or whatever from the house. It's fucking hot. Wasn't that just the best thing though when we were younger is like, I mean, some of my best memories when I was that age was, was getting on your bike, just going to the record store, browsing around. Oh, you didn't for always sure. get anything, but you would just go to see what was there. Most of the time you couldn't get anything, <laughs> but just to go check it out, just to go, just to go do something, you know? So, I mean, that day we were on a mission though. So we got on our bikes, we fucking rode again. I'm 12 years old. My brother Matt's 10. You know, we're riding over the warehouse. It's hot as fuck. We're sweating. Get the tape. Come back. It's this blue tape. I'm so hyped. Like, finally got the fucking Green Day tape. Like, whatever. Fucking uh, Noah walks up to us. First thing, we, we come we come back in the house. He's like, where's the tape? We're like, what are you talking about? He's like, where's the tape? It's my tape. I'm like, uh, what? This is our younger brother. Like, our little brother. You know? Like, telling us, like, yeah. Like, I loaned you the money. It's my tape. And we're like, what the fuck are you talking about? Damn. You know? <laughs> he was like, when we were little kids, for some reason, he was the one who had money 
you know, like, I don't know how, like the ice cream man would come and it's like, he would be like loaning, he was like the little neighborhood Shylock, like loaning money out to the other kids. Like, yeah, like I'll give you a buck, but you got to give me, you got to pay me a buck and I get a bite. You know what I mean? Like on some, on some mafia shit kind of, you know, again, this is my little, little brother. So anyway, uh, he, he's like demanding the tape and we're like, what the fuck are you talking about? And things are kind of escalating, you know, because we've literally just come in the house. We haven't even listened to it yet. And my mom's like, hey, what's going on? Kind of overhears the situation. She explains it. She's like, no, 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 no. You don't get both. You don't get to be owner. And like, because in his head, he was like, I own the tape and you're paying me back. And we're like, nah, you know, so whatever. She de-escalates that situation. Fucking basically explains to him like, yo, you, you either get to be part owner or get your money back, but not both, you know? And then basically he's like, I'd rather have my money back. We're like, all right, whatever settled. It's just me and Matt's tape. I take the tape into my room, listen to it. I'm like super hyped. And me and Matt work out this like schedule basically of like, we're going to trade the tape. Like I get it half the week. You get it half the week kind of thing, you know? So a few days go by, he comes, he knocks on my door. He's like, let me borrow the tape. I'm like, sure. He goes and borrows it couple more days go by. I'm like, I want this tape back. We're fighting. I was like, give me the fucking tape. You know, I'm, I'm the big brother. So whatever. I was, I was being a dickhead, you know, that day, whatever. And I was like, give me the tape. You know, he gave me the tape back. I went in my room and you know, there's a hidden track on that album, right? That's right. So it's like the, I was alone. I was all by myself. Yeah. Yeah. So like, (laughs) so basically I go and I, I put the tape on. And like, there's nothing there. And I was like, what the fuck? And then all of a sudden I start to hear this acoustic guitar. And it's like flamenco, it's like Spanish guitar. And I was like, what the fuck? This dude, he he messed it up. He he ruined the tape. He taped it over, you know? And because obviously you remember back when you, it was like you had to pop the tabs on the tape and you could record over it. You remember? Oh, yeah, you throw some scotch tape over it, and you're all good. Yeah, so I didn't know. I was like, what did he do? Did he tape over it and put, did he not like it and record something else over or whatever, you know? So I got mad. I just, I didn't even, I went to his room. I didn't even ask. I didn't say anything. I just started lighting him up, you know? And he was pretty much like, what? What are you doing? You know, this is my little brother. Like, sorry, Matt. I love you. But, yeah, I socked him up because I thought he ruined the Green Day tape. (laughs) And basically, that tape was that was my first punk rock anything you know and from there this whole just the whole journey started you know and then fast i mean at that point like i had no idea what punk rock was i mean i didn't even know that was punk to me that was just thrown in there with all the other 90s uh alternative that was out there you did you weren't Uh, differentiating i wasn't differentiating i mean to me it was just alternative rock i didn't know i mean other other than difference in sounds, I mean, I couldn't even understand that there was a huge difference in scenes between Green Day and Nirvana. Like that just, that was on a whole different plane to me. What was it about so, Green Day that was like jumping out at you? Like what, the visual, like what, what was it about them? The energy, the speed, like what was it? Yeah, I think it was just the energy and the speed and it was catchy. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't kind of like slow or, or drudgy. I mean, it was just, I mean, it was, it was fast and energetic, but it also was kind of had a little bit of a catchiness to it too. And it just, 
it really stuck. I mean, that was one of the few albums I remember that I could listen to from end to end without wanting to skip or fast forward through any of the songs. I mean, it was, it was incredible. Oh, definitely. And, uh, I still, I still love that album to this day. You know, I mean, I'm a big fan of old green day too, like the lookout records era green day, you know? See, and that was the funny thing to me is I remember, you know, later on, you know, people talking about green day being a sellout because their major label, it's like, they're more punk on a major label than any of the stuff they did on. Yeah. They're just like a bunch of love songs. Like, yeah. So, I mean, yeah, those, those, uh, like 39 smooth and Kerplunk and stuff. Those records are amazing. I love that shit. Yeah. I mean, everything they did was great. I mean, but for, for fast, Pete, Oh, go ahead. You go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, so that was, that was in sixth grade. And I was just, I was just eating up kind of the nineties alternative scene. I mean, I didn't know what punk was. Um, but like my Gre- cousin Green Day really kicked the door open for that in '94, though, because there was just a whole crazy. Because I was, I mean, uh, I apologize if I didn't do a great job setting that up, but in my mind, the whole early '90s was that was the alternative generation, and I mean, I guess it's kind of all alternative. And we were 12 years old at the time, so it's not like we really know. I don't know. Just like we're not deciding what's punk and what isn't. We're just absorbing new shit. You know what I'm saying? Exactly. It's just like we're not we're not defining what is or what isn't. But obviously, again, like that kind of like, you know, it was Alice in Chains, it was Pearl Jam, it was Nirvana, it was like very like very Seattle heavy early nineties, you know? And then Green yeah, Day yeah. Green I mean, Day came Sound out. Soundgarden, Pearl Jam, Nirvana, I mean Temple it, of the it, Dog, it, like all that stuff, you know. Stone they, Temple Pilots. Mm-hmm. Technically, they're San Diego, but they wish they were from Seattle. Good band, but <laughs> but anyway, but no, like Green Day just really kicked the door open for just you know punk rock in the '90s and just that whole um, just the Bay Area sound. Because obviously, from then you know you had Rancid, you had uh, Jawbreaker, you had Sam I Am, you know, and on a more commercial level, you had Offspring. You had bad religion, you had no effects, et cetera, et cetera. So, I mean, that just that whole moment in time was for people of our age group, that was pretty massive. It was. I mean, it was a great exposure to, I mean, a lot of those bands, yeah, they were bigger, but I mean, without the internet and the things they have today, uh, if I didn't have those bigger bands to be exposed to, I probably never would have found punk and hardcore. Um, I mean, that Offspring Smash album, that was that was one of the early records I brought as well. I mean, that was a great album. Uh, my first real love of punk, though, that I remember is in eighth grade was getting uh, the Let's Go album by Rancid. Oh, great that, album. That was that was incredible to me. And and I, I remember hearing that and just feeling like, OK, this is where it's at. Definitely. And that was even before an outcome, the wolves, which, you know, nobody's going to argue that that's the best fucking thing they ever did. But I mean, let's go is, was my first exposure to them. And Same. I ended up learning about that because my cousin who still lived in Southern California, he started going to, to punk shows in Southern California and him and I would talk on the phone and stay in touch. And he would just start to tell me about all this and I was just so fascinated by it. I started, I started eating it up 
And that kind of led to me getting into Rancid and getting into Bad Religion and then hearing about some of the more underground bands that he's mentioning. And again, this is like pre-internet era. So it's you have to do some work to find these bands. Uh, so I started going down to Tower Records in Dublin and they used to sell the Punk Planet magazine and the Maximum Rock and Roll magazine. And I would just buy those magazines and fucking scroll through them like I was a goddamn researcher. And I would just like hone in on a band name. And it's like, I got to find out who it is. And that's how I started learning about all of this. Did you trip out um, the line on Salvation where he says Blackhawk? Did that? <laughs> did you trip out when you heard that? Because that's like, of course, that's yeah. like next door, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's where I lived. And it's, you know, again, I mean, at that time I was starting to feel incredibly alienated because where I spent my early childhood to where I was living now, um, it just, it was just a a different world. And I didn't see the world like those kids did. And I had a hard time making friends and I was angry and I was pissed off and I didn't know exactly what it was or why at the time or where to put it but I was starting to find an outlet for it in music. Absolutely. So what was, um, what was your first, uh, physical exposure to punk rock? Like as far as like going to a show. So my first exposure to punk rock was a Danville green show. And I got to see powerhouse and second coming that, this was uh, your first this is your first punk rock show ever yes it was the first thing that I had ever gone to because before that um I had found the the Gilman phone number oh and dude. That, that was another thing I amazing would like, yeah it was awesome <laughs> and you know I was having a hard time you know going to shows and whatnot because that was all the way in Berkeley and I didn't know how I was going to get there but I was calling their their number. And just listening to the bands they had on there, just so okay, I got to find who these who these people are and see what they're about. And there was a local band in Danville called STFU. Shut the fuck up! And I mean, they were they were sort of punk, sort of hardcore, but they were just like some high school kids from Danville. And I don't even know remember how I ended up meeting them, but I was given a flyer for for that Danville Green show. And it's like, okay, this isn't, this isn't, you know, an eighth grade kid trying to figure out how he's going to get all the way out to Berkeley for a concert. I can get up to Danville. I can see this. Uh, so who so all was on the bill? Uh, that was the, that was the powerhouse rely second coming and downshift show. Wow. And that, that local Danville band STFU that was opening it up. Yeah. That's and a, that's a stacked show. I mean, that's, you're just like jumping in feet first into the Bay Area hardcore scene, just like off top, you know, usually most yeah. kids like their first punk shows or their first any shows. Like my first show ever was at the Concord Pavilion. It was Joe Cocker, like the guy who sings the song from the Wonder Years. You know what I'm saying? It's <laughs> like, you know what I'm talking about? The Have a Little Help with My Friend song. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I was like, hey, there was some fun concerts. I was a little kid, you know, I went with like my, my friend's family, you know what I mean? Like, but whatever, but dude, powerhouse is your first physical, just literal being there exposure to punk rock and hardcore. That's like, dude, that's jumping in the deep end, like right away. 
but it was such a weird experience because I mean, again, I knew nothing about hardcore and I was confused as fuck because I think that I'm in a punk rock show and I'm hearing some fantastic music, but it's all these guys that to me were dressed like jocks and all the kids at school that I fucking hated. And they were dancing in a weird fucking way that I've never seen before. And I just had no idea what to think of any of it at the time. And it was just such a funny way to to kind of break into all that. Barrier, um Barrier hardcore dancing at that time too was a pretty uh it's a pretty interesting thing. <laughs> it was pretty ugly and um not really fully formed, you know. We were kind of I think the barrier we were just kind of emulating a lot of what we had seen in videos that we were just kind of getting from the East coast or like, I hate to say it, but the sick of it all video, the step down video. Well, it seems like it was just, I mean, I don't know what was going on before, before I started coming around, but it seemed very new to the West coast at that time. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think up until like, I can't say for sure because I was just a young buck. I mean, I didn't go to my first punk show until 1995, but um, obviously older guys will know better than me, but from everything I've heard, you know, it was something that didn't really get here until about 95, 96. So, yeah, I mean, we were right at the start of it. I mean, at that time, too, I mean, you know, kind of kind of learning how things were playing out, looking back in history. I mean, Powerhouse at the time was looked at by the rest of the country is the only real California hardcore band. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I'd say them in like redemption 87 you know so that's true but at the time powerhouse was getting getting all the love i mean it was funny i mean i have a memory i was on a family vacation in boston and i was at a record store and i saw some some hardcore kids there and they were clowning you know i told them where i was from and they were clowning on california hardcore and they the words that came out of their mouth was that the only real california hardcore band is powerhouse wow that's crazy what year was that Man, I must, uh, that was either my freshman or sophomore year. Okay. Yeah. 96, 97, somewhere in there. Yeah. But I mean, their, their idea of California hardcore at the time was, uh, was Fury 66 AFI. You know, that was, that was what people thought of California hardcore. So what are your thoughts on that? Being from the East Bay, like at that time, um, that's what was that's who was representing quote unquote East Bay hardcore. They're the ones putting it on shirts and you know, Screw 32, AFI. I mean, Good Riddance is a Santa Cruz band, but and also Fury 66, but you know that kind of sound that was happening at the time in the mid nineties in the Bay Area. Like, what are your thoughts on that? So, first off, they're all excellent bands. I mean, wh- whether or not you think that they they they're not hard enough, whatever. Fury 66 is a fucking amazing band. I've always loved them. I mean, if Ignite has a place in hardcore, Fury 66 definitely has a place in hardcore too. True. And you cannot talk shit on those first two AFI albums. Oh, definitely not. I mean, they and were AFI fast, shows. They were pissed off. They were just so energetic and good. Yeah, their live shows back when were amazing too. I mean, they really like just the energy and just the chaos. Like, it was like the stage dive Olympics, like at AFI shows back when, you know? Yeah. And I remember that the first time I saw him was, was at Slim's and it was, 
I believe it was around the time their third album came out. So they were still playing a lot of their old shit and it was so much fun. Not the black, I mean, it Sa- was- not the black sales release, right? I was no, at, not I was at both sales. of those. Yeah. I was at both was, of those shows. Uh, it seems. God, what was it? it was open your mouth or, or open your eyes and shut your mouth. I shut, think. Yeah. Shut your mouth and open your eyes. That's a good album. That's yeah. like, they were kind of like, I'd say probably their most quote unquote hardcore album or like, I think they were really heavily borrowing from sick of it all and other bands, you know, East coast bands at the time, like they had toured with like, I think maybe indecision and stuff too. So they were more in Snapcase, you know, I think they were and, kind of and really heavily inspired album, by that. Yeah. And, after that, they kind of got really into the whole Danzig, Samhain kind of. Yeah. Whatever. Thing. But the, I mean, that first album uh, they did, I mean, to me, that was not a hardcore album. That is just a straight, good punk rock album. Oh, definitely. I mean, but those, like I said, those those first few, I'd say everything up until Black Sales is pretty solid, you know. And as far as like, I mean, if you were there, you know, like AFI was a force to be reckoned with in the '90s in the Bay Area. You know, like their shows were second to none. Yeah, I mean, anyone who clowns on AFI does not know what they're talking about. They. They they were just they were such a great band and had a you know they had their place in the Bay Area hardcore and punk rock scene and I mean it's one thing if you don't like what they're doing now but I mean you can't argue that they're good at what they do oh definitely um, who were some of the other bands that you were after that powerhouse show like who were some of the other bands that you kind of started to gravitate to and just um, that you were receptive to Barry bands specifically. So after that, um, I started getting into a lot of the East Bay Menace kind of stuff. Oh, fuck yeah. Uh, Let's talk about East Bay Menace. That label yes. was amazing. Um, so my first exposure to East Bay Menace, and, you know, again, like I was learning about all of the shit just by flipping through fucking uh, Maxwell Rock and Roll magazines. And I remember seeing this ad in one of their magazines for a, for the Dead Rats and Oakland Dogs album out Strict on East Bay Menace. Yeah. Yeah. That was a banger. So at the time, I was trying to start up a fanzine. It was called Suburban Chaos. And uh, you and I had a conversation sometime in the past about how faking until you make it. And that's <laughs> what I was doing when I was a kid. It's like I was into this. I wanted to be a part of it. So I just decided that I wanted to start a fanzine, not knowing the first thing about uh, writing a magazine, getting in contact with bands. I wasn't even going to a lot of shows at that point. I had only gone to maybe two or three shows by the time I decided this what I wanted to do. So I was getting in contact by bands by looking up the phone numbers to these record labels that I was finding in Maxim Rock and Roll and just saying, yo, I want to interview this band. And I called up East Bay Manis and uh just started talking with them knowing nothing about the band just knowing that they were from oakland saying i'm starting this thing i went into Stri- you guys. strict nine you mean yeah yeah, yeah strict okay. nine. sorry yeah, but, but i called good. the label east bay man yeah yeah it uh, was uh was, Le- it was that dude lenny who was in filth he lenny was, ran the label yeah. yeah he played guitar in strict nine and he ran the label and he used to be in filth back when so i mean cool fucking dude because you know i'm just this eighth grade kid doesn't know what the fuck i'm talking about invites me down to their uh their office uh in oakland and it starts slinging records and stickers and shirts my way 
And we did this interview and it was just such a cool experience. Uh, you know, they showed me nothing but respect. And, you know, I was just, I was a kid. I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know the right questions to ask. I didn't know a fucking thing about the band, but here I am doing this. And, uh, you know, and again, they, they introduced me to the rest of the stuff on the label and I just ate that shit up. Their, their catalog is amazing. Like what are your favorite releases on that, that label? So I got to say my favorite release that came out on that label. I mean, it was, uh, well, it's two of them. Uh, I'm, the I'm kind of like, th- oh, okay, go ahead. I, I got a three-way tie going in my head, but you, you say yours first. Okay. So it's the working stiffs dog tired album and that strict nine dead rats in Oakland dogs album. That one's good. Uh, that one's good. Yeah. I'm going mean, to go just like we were talking about with that green day album. I mean that that's an album that you can just listen to and sing along for the whole album. And, you know, oh, dude, catchy as fuck! Track. Major like poison idea vibes when I listen to that record. Yes, um, but for me personally, my money. Oh shit! There's a fourth one that I'm just thinking of right now. Um, Oho Roho, can you keep your sanity? That record is amazing. That's like to yeah. me the Barry a version of nausea. Um, cause they had the, the dual male, female vocals and like, you know, they were like, they're a full on crust band, but dude, I mean, we've, we've talked about this off, off air, but you know, we, we both know that the, the scene at the time there wasn't, even though your first show was powerhouse and, and rely and whatever else. I mean, you basically saw every single hardcore band on your first show ever or every single bay band that was you know in the bay from the bay at that time that was like they were all playing that one show coincidentally but typically we weren't always able to see those bands on a regular basis you know what i mean or at least together you know so a lot of the kind of filler bands on those shows were east bay menace bands you know or oppress logic or like ape face or something like that you know but uh el dopa dude that the 1332 lp that yes, thing is that fucking is, amazing. Is, I love that. I, the album they did was great, but that seven inch is it was pure oh the seven the seven inch on prank. But I was referring to the man. Now you got me thinking. I don't know which one I like better, but both of them are amazing. Um, but I was actually referring to the album, the full length. Uh, the shit gets smashed. Comp, you remember that one? Uh, see, you got to love that cl- comp because it was such a good representation of what the punk rock scene in the Bay area was at that time. So much good um, stuff. Multifacet. Um, what was it? Who I else? Ape face, El Dopa, dude. So good. So good. And then the last one that I'm going to say, that's got to put on for Concord represent enemies, secondhand spit, uh, split seven inch. The enemies were good. I, I can't argue with that. I love them. That was our band. Like, they're from where I'm from. And when we were growing up, that was our shit. So shout out to the enemies. Cause I still love that record. It's not, it's not like a proper hardcore record the way most people who probably would listen to the show. If they go and they try and check out what we're talking about, they're going to be like, Oh, this is punk rock shit. You know, it's like, <laughs> dude, like for people, for people, our age who grew up in the Bay area, it's like, if you didn't see these bands and I kind of question or not, whether you were even there, you know, it's kind of like, yeah, I mean, like you said, that's what was going on at the time. Um, and it was, it was really, really unique. I mean, the, the whole Bay area punk rock thing was, 
really just kind of gritty and rough. I mean, it was like a press logic, strict nine. You throw out El Dopa. It was a very heavily alcohol and drug influenced scene at the time. (laughs) And really kind of like ironically, like, you know, Rancid, Green Day, Jawbreaker, all these bands, they're on the radio. All the bands that we're going to see sound nothing like those bands, you know, and it, it felt kind of reactionary, you know? It did. And it's Gilman kind of had had that scene going on that they would book a lot of those bands, but they it was kind of like the darker side of the bay. It was like there was like the lookout scene and then there was kind of like over there and then there was like the East Bay Menace like prank, uh, even like some of the slap of him stuff, you know? Like that shit was over here, you know. Like that, the some of those crush shows at that time were they were amazing, but they were also kind of scary. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was, but it was it was what was going on at the bay at at that time, and you know, you you gotta you gotta love and respect it. I mean, there was there was a lot of politics that that I didn't start to like that that were coming into it because I kind of felt like people were getting a little sanctimonious. But at least with like the strict nine stuff they were just dirty punk rockers. It wasn't politics. They didn't give a shit about politics. They just wanted a fucking cold. They didn't even care if the beer was cold. They just wanted a beer. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Politics, Um, politics were not on their agenda at all. But it was funny. You mentioned the enemies because they were actually playing the first show that I ever saw at Gilman, which was the enemies, strychnine, El Dopa and fields of shit. And that was, I was probably, I was probably at that. Oh, that's a dope one. Fields of shit. That's X. Um, that's Jake from filth, right? Yep. Rest in peace. And I didn't know that at the time. So it's just kind of one of those things. Like when I went to that show at the Grange, I didn't know what I was seeing, but looking back, you're, you're glad you were, you were, you were there for that show. Yeah. You like accidentally like saw some gems, you know, like that's pretty crazy. So had you met, um, had you met Carlos yet at this point? I had not met Carlos quite yet. Uh, I met him later my freshman year or beginning of my sophomore year. Cause I, I met him because my buddy Pete shout out to, to Pete. We'll talk about him later. Cause he's tied to, to all the breakout stuff. But my buddy Pete came across this demo tape from this band called YFH, you fucking hippie, which was a band from Danville that was just a really, really obnoxious kind of fast metallic uh, punk rock band from. They kind of started like almost like on the no effects type of thing, and then they became like a grindcore band. Yeah, yeah, and that's why they ended up changing their name because I think they realized that they were something completely different than what they started as. Also, um. <sighs> Carlos is, if he hears this, I don't know if he will, but uh, <laughs> he might, he might call bullshit, but I feel like they used to go by something other than you fucking hippie, but also YFH. I want to say it was like, it was on a flyer or something like yoga from Holland or some shit like that. I can't remember, but yeah, I feel like they had different um, acronyms for, for their name. Yeah. I think they tried to change it up, um, but originally it was you fucking hippie. And then um, eventually Antagony. Yeah, 
which I always made fun of Carlos for because one of uh, one of YFH's songs was your heavy metal sucks. And, you know, here they are, a heavy ass grindcore band. <laughs> so who was in that band uh, at the time? Uh, it was Carlos and uh, Nick was the singer at the time, um, who was also the uh, he was in Antagony at the beginning as well. Mm-hmm. I don't recall the other bandmates because those were the two that I had originally interviewed. And those were the two that I was closest with, but they were, they ben were from, uh, kids at the time. All shall perish was in antagony. Yes. He was in antagony. Uh, he I, wasn't I, in YFH. I, was just, I don't believe he was in YFH. I honestly, it blurs together in my mind. Like just going, I mean, I wanted to talk about jo- was Jody the drummer yet. I don't think he was. No, I don't think he was either. Cause I mean, Jody was, correct me if I'm wrong, but he, he was a conquered guy, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So I want to talk about this real quick. So, um, RIP Jody Glenn Handy. He was a good friend of mine when I was growing up, we met, um, would have been freshman year, summer school. I was 14 years old and he actually, uh, I showed up to school and this dude was wearing a maroon redemption 87 shirt. And I had already been going to punk rock shows, but I wasn't really like, you know, I was dabbling in hardcore. I was starting to figure shit out, but I didn't, you know, I wasn't like a hardcore kid. You know what I mean? So anyway, like we struck up a conversation and he was just cool. And uh, he had a DRI patch on his hat. Like he always had that, you know, just like a homemade punk rock patch, like sewn on his hat or whatever. So anyway, we struck up a conversation. He was just a cool motherfucker. And the next day he brought me a tape and the A side was the Redemption 87 LP, the first one. And the B side was Grimple Up Your Ass. And that shit was like a major game changer for me. And uh, That's a great tape to get. Right? So I'm 14 years old with this tape. So, And, uh, you know, me and my new friend, we start <laughs> without saying too much. Uh, we had some good times and we got into some good trouble together. You know, innocent kid stuff. But you can probably, you know, you can probably assess. Knowing knowing who Jody was and the types of things that he was into for recreation. You, you follow yeah. what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, uh, that was kind of, you know, what we started doing at that age. But um, I do remember, I want to say it was like maybe a, a year after that, I feel like he was telling me he was like going to be playing drums for this band. And I was like, who? And I, I can't remember, but like, I want to say they were already antagony. And I was like confused, you know, like, I was like, wait, that's, that's YFH. Like you play drums in YFH now, you know, but he's like, oh, I'm going to be in this new band or whatever. But it's like, dude, you're joining YFH. Like, what are you talking about? You know, but <laughs> so, yeah. And then he was the drummer. Um, He was the drummer of antagony. So I don't know, pretty wild. And then through him, I met Carlos and a lot of those guys. So, and probably actually you eventually. So yeah, kind of a trip. Yeah. I mean, that whole, that whole corridor, I mean, we were all kind of connected one way or another and, uh, just East Bay kind of like Contra Costa kids, San Ramon's Contra Costa, right? Yes, it is. And you know, it's just like, there wasn't, there wasn't a lot of us. So, I mean, I remember at the time, I mean, we were friends with, you know, the punk rockers and the skinheads and the hardcore kids and the fucking kind of like thrashy crust kids. Like, I mean, it didn't matter. We were all into underground music. Yeah. Skaters. It was a real mixed bag. Yeah. So I think we, we just all kind of came together because even if our, you know, the, 
the subcultures we identified as were a little bit different. I mean, we were all into underground music and we were all able to be friends through it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, I mean, that was, you know, absolutely RIP Joey. He was, he was sad deal right there. I mean, I have good memories of that guy just hanging out with Carlos and Antagony at shows. Uh, I remember we rolled down to a metal fest in LA with, uh, the guys from Antagony and Blaine from 240, and we just and Basam, right? We had a lot of fun. Did Basam roll too? Yep. Yeah, 240. That's another. That's another band. Um, them and uh, Boof. They were kind of in that in between. Like I feel like 240, Boof, and Antagony. They always kind of have right. They they had this bringing con- back memories with Boof right there. <laughs> <laughs> they had this connection. So where they were all friends and they were all kind of like, they were dudes that went to hardcore shows and whatever, but I don't think they were ever, ever really fully accepted or embraced by the Bay Area hardcore scene. Does that make sense? No, and I, I don't think they were either. And I mean, it was too bad because I mean, they were, they were all about it and you know, 240 was a good band. Yeah, definitely. I mean, they kind of had like, I mean, I'm sure whoever's listening, it's like, 240 is one 240 is one of those bands that they they didn't get outside the barrier so probably and they didn't really have that much stuff recorded so probably a lot of people just never heard them and they're never going to hear them but in my head they kind of sound a lot like irate i think that's a good comparison i mean i remember i remember the first time you know blaine was playing me his is uh i think it was a live recording he did at burnt ramen but he was playing me something that 240 did. And, you know, I was like, yeah, I mean, I'll be into it. This is a homeboy or whatever. But I'm just like, this is, this is good. Yeah, it was sick. It was like graffiti, metallic, hardcore. Like, I don't know how to explain it. Like drug influenced, <laughs> just, yeah, Richmond. It's, it's its own thing. You know, it's totally its own thing. But you know what? I mean, the Bay Area, I mean, there was, there was so much going on that, there were their own things that kind of existed. I mean, you and I have, have talked online, just offline, sorry about uh, how we were all friends. Uh, and we all knew each other at all the shows we went to, all the hardcore shows. We all, we all knew that certain people were just going to be there. But there was other shit that was hardcore or hardcore related that really wasn't uh, wasn't really on our radar that was happening at the same time. I mean, like what happens next was, was a great fucking band, but they weren't, they didn't seem like they were really on the radar at the time. They were kind of off doing their own thing. Yeah. I think some of those bands kind of, I feel like they intentionally kind of segregated themselves, you know, like the barrier is just a weird thing. You know, it's just like, it's one of these places where there's so many bands and it's like, why don't these bands play together? You know, it's like, how come this band never plays with that band? But I just, some of these guys, I don't know. I just, I don't think they were really interested in crossing paths or worlds colliding like that. You know, it's unfortunate. Yeah, which it was really unfortunate because, I mean, there was, you know, we talk about how there was a lot of great mixed bills, but at the same time, there were a lot of bands that were kind of doing their own thing and separate from everything else. And I mean, it just... I wish some of those bands would would have played with some of the some of the hardcore bands that we were going out to see more on a regular basis. Yeah, well, I mean, fortunately, because of guys like you, you're one of the guys that kind of made that stuff happen. So jumping back to the Carlos thing, like when did you guys start doing shows together? Like when did you guys start putting together some of those mixed bills at the Grange and everything? 
So after we did the interview, uh, I mean, Carlos and I just hit it off. We became really good friends. And uh, oh, and real quick, how many issues of the zine did you put out? So there was only ever three issues of of Suburban Chaos that came out um, because after the third issue, uh, I mean, it was just it was a straight up. There was some hardcore bands that I interviewed in there, but it was kind of a punk rock driven magazine. And at, the, and at the end of the third issue, I had started to get more into hardcore. And I also was putting a little bit more effort into into booking shows. And then I started uh, uh, trying to put together the the One Scene Records label that did the, the Sworn Vengeance All Bets Off split. So the magazine just kind of kind of fell off. So what year would that have been? So we're probably we're probably looking at 90, 98 at this point, ninety eight, ninety nine. Okay. Cause the Sworn Vengeance All Bits Off split came out, I want to say summer ninety nine, right? Yeah. And then the breakout stuff, we're we're jumping forward a little bit, but the breakout stuff was happening around well, I mean, breakout had been happening since Colby started doing the zine in like ninety five, you know. Yeah. So I mean Breakout the zine was was around before I even knew what hardcore was and kind of kind of a funny little time story, you know, how I'm telling you about how I'm just going to Tower Records and buying up these Maxim Rock and Rolls. Real 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 quick. Break, breakout though. Records was I mean Breakout Fanzine was there too. Okay, so real quick, um there's something in the, in your area and I was just curious just a quick little whatever. Were you ever going to Iron Horse? Because that's I, I have the first two issues. I'm looking at them right now. I have the first two issues of Breakout Fanzine, and they came from Iron Horse Comics, and that was out in your area. That was that was in downtown Danville, and it was this this very nice uh, kind kind of old lady old lady new age hippie. Um, it was a small shop, and she would order you whatever you wanted. I ended up getting a lot of records through her. But she had a cool um, little selection of, I mean, personally, it was, for me, it was kind of far, but I had friends that went there and they always came back with cool shit. Like she had a good selection of zines over there. She had a good selection of zines. I mean, she had a good, good, small collection of independent music. And if she didn't have it, she would have ordered it for you. I mean, I remember, uh, I was a big fan of the heckle. We're not laughing, uh, with you album. Um, and I couldn't find that anywhere. And that's, that's who I was able to order it through. And then, um, jumping back, sorry, I cut you off. Uh, you, you made, you were starting to talk about tower and then I cut you off with the iron horse thing. Oh yeah. That was my first exposure to, to the breakout fanzine. And I picked that up and that was kind of, do you remember which issue seeds? I don't even remember what issue I just remember. Uh, it was a green cover and had, had what I think was a cartoon drawing of, uh, of somebody holding, a like a boom box or something is, is how I remember the cover. Maybe I'm wrong and remembering it, but that's, that's how it is in my head. I have number two and it's a, it's got a yellow cover and there's a skinhead Charlie Brown and he's got yes. suspenders and he's holding a baseball bat. Is that the one? Okay. That is probably it. That is way off from what I just said, but that's <laughs> Yeah, it's got uh I'm just grabbing it. Hold on one second. All right, so issue 1 is Powerhouse Second Coming AFI and Redemption 87. It's a black and white cover. 
It's got like thick cardstock on the cover. And then issue number two is um, 25 to Life, Warzone, yes. Sick of It All, Setback, Screw 32, Hoods, Machine Head, and One for One. That's Summer 96. So that's a fucking stacked issue right there, dude. <laughs> that shit for me was a game changer. So that was your first issue of Breakout was the second one I just said with the Charlie Brown cover? It was. And I'm, I don't even I'm gonna, Whoever's listening can't, he, can't see this, but I'm taking a picture of this and sending it to you right now so you can confirm. But go ahead. Okay. Go ahead and talk while I'm doing this. So I don't even remember how I found this out and kind of backtracking a little bit to the fanzine. Um, but I had found out that Colby, prior to doing Breakout, was from San Ramon, and him and Pete used to do a punk rock zine that they used to run out of San Ramon uh, called The Insubordinator Magazine. And they used to interview all sorts of local hardcore and punk bands from the Bay Area. I mean, it was a really cool zine. It was kind of the same layout as Breakout, where it was just typed cut and paste but they had cool interviews i mean they were always doing like afi screw 32 i mean they did some old bands like hellbillies were were interviewed by them uh and i found out that these dudes were sent from san ramon and i wanted to find out who they were and kind of by chance somebody i went to school with had mentioned that that somebody at his church was friends with Pete's family. So at this point I'm in, I'm in eighth grade and this dude pulls Pete's family's phone number from some fucking church directory. And I'm just this eighth grade kid and I'm hitting him up, you know, this random kid pulled his phone number out of nowhere and started asking him questions about the zine because I'm trying to get my own going. And that's that's how my friendship started and how I started to get to know know Pete and later on Colby. So can we talk about um unfortunately they're not on the episode with us. I'm only set up to do one phone call at a time. Also, Col Colby's living kind of off the radar right now, but uh can we talk about who Colby is and what his contribution you know to break out into the bay and hardcore in general? You know, I mean, it was huge. His influence of hardcore on the Bay and his influence on, on the rest of hardcore to expose the Bay. I mean, Breakout was like the hardcore zine at the time. I mean, everybody in the country was reading Breakout uh, and it brought a lot of hardcore bands to the Bay Area and a lot of people like me who didn't have a lot of exposure to hardcore started seeing stuff like sick of it all and things like that. And when he started the label and he released that California hardcore comp, like I mentioned earlier about kind of the reputation that, that a lot of people kind of had for California hardcore at the time. I, I feel like he put the Bay and a lot of the West coast hardcore kind of on the map with that comp that he released. I mean, that was, oh, that absolutely. was a killer comp. Absolutely. I, I mean, mean, to this day, it's one of my, one of my favorite compilations of hardcore music period and such a great representation of California hardcore barrier all over, you know, different styles, great bands. I mean, you've got on that compilation, you have hoods, redemption, powerhouse, 
Second Coming, AFI, Nonus and Victim, uh, Built to Last, Forced Life. Who else is on there? Uh, Sworn Vengeance is on there. That's right. I think there was still Downshift at the time. Um, Fury 66. Is, Fury there, is there a Model American there. song on there? I think there's a Model American song on there. I think that they are on there. I try to remember if it was that or the straight edge comp, but I'm pretty sure it was California. Oh no, it's definitely the Cali hardcore comp. They're not on the straight edge comp, but yeah. Um, Sworn vengeance is on both of them actually. Yes. I think you're right. I think they're they're the only band that's hardcore comp. Yeah. So can I, so you didn't have any involvement in that release? No, no, none at all. Okay. So, cause Uh, I was going to ask you, is there any particular reason certain bands weren't on that compilation, you know, like that maybe some of the bands that were on the 10 years later comp, but you wouldn't know. So. Yeah. Yeah. I, I wouldn't have the answer to that. I mean, that was, that was pretty much uh Colby's deal. And what Pete what, started to get involved with the label um, when, when they started doing the hoods and uh, the redemption 87, seven inch. Okay. So that would have been the second and third release. So uh, the second one was the redemption 87 record uh, Spidey sessions, which yes. is uh technically Spidey sessions, 95, according to the cover art, that record did not come out in 1995. Do you remember when it came out? I want to say 99, um, maybe 98, but I think closer to 99. It took a I, long I, it was, time. It was somewhere, it was on that cusp. Yeah, it was somewhere in there because I, I remember it was it was pink. It was on pink vinyl. But, but it, it was recorded in 99 because when it, or in no, it was, yeah, it was recorded in 95. It's their demo, right? Yeah, and it was uh, the Spidey Sessions. It was uh, that was uh, Lars Fredrickson that did the recording for them. Like it's well, it's it technically is their demo tape, right? Yes, but they never Cause, they cause never the songs re- are not new material. Yeah, but they they never released a demo tape, did they? As far as I know, there isn't a Redemption eighty seven demo. Not not to my awareness. So it's like a posthumous demo. I mean, I'll have to. That's a question for somebody else. We, somebody else, whatever. <laughs> but anyway, um, so then you said after that, that was the third release would have been Hoods Alone, right? Yes. And uh, do you know, do you have any of the details on that? Because I've heard some crazy rumors about that record, like how how cheap they recorded it for and stuff like that. So I don't have a lot of the details on that record because... Because that is probably, to this day, my favorite Hoods recording, period, hands down, all time. Uh, Alone and Endless Pain. Can we talk about those records for a second? I mean, I know Endless Pain was a stillborn release, but can we talk about that? I mean, those two releases were... To me, their best releases as well. I mean, yeah. I mean... And I, I think anybody from the Bay area or like particularly the guys of our generation before hoods was on victory. I mean, hoods was, I can't emphasize how, how intense live, you know, and how scary their shows could be, how fun their shows were, but also how scary they could be, you know, I how, mean, they were, they were how they solid were they were. They were just crazy. They were energetic. I mean, whenever, whenever they would play, uh, once again, 90, uh, 98 or 
I mean, it was just, everybody would go crazy. Yeah. The whole, the whole fucking room would go off for endless pain or any of that stuff. Um, I mean, I've heard that that, that record was, and I can't confirm for sure, but I've heard that that record was like recorded for like a couple hundred bucks. And I mean, in my mind, that's exactly what all the hoods records should sound like. Is that Matt Eric's production, you know? Um, I mean, it was just, it was such a clean recording too. Like Ben, like Ben, Mario, Jeremy and Mikey, like you, nobody was touching that. Nobody was touching that era of hoods. There was, that was like our mad ball or, you know, terror, any of these fucking bands that, you know, people, people put on that level, sick of it all or agnostic front, whatever that was, hoods was that to us, you know what I mean? In that time, you know? And yeah, I mean, they were. Like you know, life changing to hardcore shows, they were, yeah, you were most excited to see hoods. Like, and, and, and I mean, to be fair too, like they played a lot, you know, and they played a lot of the same songs. So you kind of knew what you were getting, but we weren't getting sick of it, you know? And I mean, I just, I can't emphasize enough how much, how vital and how important hoods. And I mean, you know, you were there, but to anybody not from the barrier i mean and i'm not going to say anything disrespectful but obviously hoods has changed and evolved a lot over the years they've had different lineup changes member changes etc cetera, etc cetera. but the hoods that we grew up on was just something very 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 special and that record alone has a very special place in my heart still to this day yeah, absolutely. And you hit the nail on the head. I mean, we, we never got, got tired of it. I mean, it was the same set and we would see them. I mean, you know, we, we would see them three times in a month because they were headlining all the, all the hardcore shows that were going on and we'd be at every one and they would be just as energetic as the last. And that record is what? Six songs in like seven, eight minutes. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of ridiculous if you really think about it, but it's just like, Yeah. The photos, the photos were shot at that um, Nick Trana show, the that Slim show, the memorial. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know. I I, I have all these little tidbits about that record floating around in my brain, but I'm not going to punish you with them because you weren't the one to put it out. But um, <laughs> yeah, just I just wanted to touch on how important that record was, and just these early breakout releases, how much they mean to the Bay area considering and seriously so much respect, thanks and appreciation to Colby Bazell and Pete, both who unfortunately aren't a part of this conversation, but in spirit. Um, yeah. I mean, without, without those guys and obviously yourself, I mean, the legacy and impact of Bay area hardcore beyond the Bay area. I mean, we know what we saw. We know how special our shows were and how special those bands were. And there's some bands that they weren't documented, you know, and they didn't have recordings that got out. But kids in Europe heard those records. You know what I'm saying? Like kids around the world heard those records and they're like, this is fucking Barry Hardcore. This is what Barry sounds like, you know? And it's like, just like how you said those kids in Boston, they're like powerhouse is the only real, real Cali hardcore band, you know? But it's like, and you then could, you could take that as a diss. California band. Yeah. And you could kind of take it as a diss or you could also kind of take it as like, yeah, like fuck it. Like, yeah, that's our shit. 
Like that's bay shit. That is the real shit. You know what I'm saying? It's not like I mean, they, it, it's not like they're it like Pennywise. Shit, is, but they did they didn't know. But you know what I'm saying? It's not like they're like, oh, Pennywise is the only real bay or the only real Cali hardcore. You know what I'm saying? It's like they're like no right. powerhouse. It's like real recognized real, you know? So whatever. Anyway. So beyond that, so okay, we've covered the comp, the redemption record, and the hoods EP. So then after that, you guys did was it the straight edge comp? So after the hoods EP, yes, it would have been it would have been the straight edge comp. Uh, Pete was that was something that Pete put together because I believe by that point Colby was in the military. Okay, uh, and for those who so, don't know, Colby is he's a career military guy, right? Yeah, he was. Uh, well, he's 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 not currently in the military. He's retired now, but he okay. was. He did he did time. He was a veteran, and he uh, he served in Iraq. Yeah, and he wrote um, a very well received book. Uh, he's a published author, and he wrote a very well received book called My War. Um, yeah, great book. I actually haven't read it, but I, I heard some really good things. So shout out to Colby. So you know, he's actually. I mean, he's a pretty published author now i mean that's he's got three books that he has published so that's not the only one. Oh, really what are the other titles so the other one is uh sorry i'm drawing a blank here <laughs> it's all good we'll come back to it so um jumping back to okay okay so he's got he's got lost in america a dead-end journey and then he has another one called uh, Thank You for Being Expendable in Other Experiences. Okay. Uh, secretly, I hope that he hears this this episode and that he does a breakout anthology book that looks something like the Schism book. So that's on my Christmas wish list. So Colby, if you hear that, please and thank you. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, but you were saying, so number four, uh, number four was the straight edge comp and that Pete had kind of taken things over at that point. Yeah. Yeah. So he had put together that straight edge rise of a new era comp. So um, how did that whole change of hands thing go? Cause normally, you know, if somebody does a label, then they just kind of like, you know, it kind of fades into obscurity once they decide to stop putting out records. But I feel like, I mean, breakout, it kind of switched hands a few times, but Again, it was very important to the Bay, and I feel like there were people within the scene at that time that they they had somewhat of a they felt a responsibility to keep it going. You know, am I am I being accurate or? So I mean, you're absolutely accurate, but the other part of that is uh, Pete and Colby were always best friends, so he was, you know, they were pretty much partnered on it. And even though uh, it was Colby driven, those those other three releases, Pete was involved in the label at that time. So it wasn't like he just he stepped up, but not, not doing, but anything. not the Zine though, right? Or correct, correct. Me if I'm yeah, wrong. the Zine was Colby. The, the Zine was all Colby. The label was the two of them, and at a certain point, Colby got busy with the military, and correct, Pete, Pete kind of took over. Correct. And then where I ended up becoming involved uh, with the low life record was when Pete. Are we, actually, are we skipping any? Because that was um, that was after the second coming record. Right. What el what else is in there? 
Oh yeah. I mean, I was just talking about the timeline of, of our involvement, but yeah, I mean, we had the second coming. Well, record, like which... we, we did breakout four, which is the straight out, the straight edge comp and what's breakout five. So I think you're right. We skipped over the second coming record because the and second on, coming honestly, record. Honestly, I was on came... I was on Discogs and I didn't see a breakout five. So I wanted to ask you what's breakout five? Like, cause I think you guys did nine records, right? Yeah. But so as far as was... catalog titles, like I didn't see California it. <laughs> Hardcore, Redemption eighty seven, uh Then the Hoods, Hoods then the Second Coming, uh and the Edge Comp. The Edge Comp uh lazarus project lazarus project and the low and, life record and the low life record and sworn, the vengeance. sworn vengeance record was was kind of a deal where where it was not put out by breakout uh it was pretty much being controlled by ryan we were just distilling it so we had ties to that record but it wasn't exclusively a breakout title did you guys help fund the release so I believe the the recording and all that was done by Ryan. Um, and, and you guys did like a and d kind of packaging distribution yeah, type thing? Yeah, exactly. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, that's so, definitely, um, I wouldn't say standard operating procedure. I mean, from a different labels are like, that was very cool of you guys to do that. You know what I'm saying? Because typically a lot of labels, they want to, you know, they want to own things. But obviously, this is the hardcore scene, and a lot of things are done on a kind of a handshake. Well, I, mean, I think a big handshake part of level. breakout was was being a just a good ambassador for for um, Bay Area hardcore, you know, California and Bay Area hardcore. Exactly. And yeah, it was never like a vengeance. it was never a business move. You know, it was like this is just like to keep you know to keep the Bay name out there. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, absolutely. I mean, it was it was a great project because I mean nobody made any money on it whatsoever, but we got a lot of name recognition from doing it. Uh, we got a lot of bands out there, and what I really liked about the the Sworn Vengeance record and having playing any part in that was the fact that uh, Sworn Vengeance at the time, I mean that that whole kind of metal metal hardcore crossover was was kind of new at that time i mean what they were doing some bands were doing it but it wasn't really catching on as a thing definitely they were they were very early on the whole um kind of that new wave of american metal like what became um you know like the lamb of gods and the god forbids and all that those kind of bands you know uh that the last record the unreleased record the outstretched arms of damnation like that was that was definitely in that lane. I think that would have been a really huge record for them had that would have come out. Uh, yeah, I mean, had they completed that album and released it, I mean, they were they were on the cusp of blowing up, and it was it was kind of sad how how that went down towards the end. I mean, I'm glad they're they're playing now. I mean, they're a great band, uh, but it's just uh, that that just always bummed me out more than anything because I was so excited to see what they were going to do as a band, and I just felt like they stopped short. Yeah, the evolution of that band is pretty crazy from a Sonic perspective because when they started, they kind of just had like that, just kind of an Earth Crisis kind of you know chuggy type thing happening. Yeah, they were just kind of kind of a chuggy straight edge hardcore band. And then like I don't know why, like do you know Next Step Up from Baltimore? I do not. Oh well, I would compare uh, like 
that middle era of sworn vengeance, you know, when they're actually sworn vengeance and like the weapon shows era of sworn vengeance. Um, yeah, I would definitely compare them to next step up for whoever's listening, but yeah, sick band from Baltimore. Um, speaking of weapon shows though. Yes. Got to talk about the weapons. shows. Yeah. So, okay. You know what, actually I want to touch on that, but, um, I feel like we kind of, we kind of, uh, skipped past some of these Grange Hall shows. So, you linked up with Carlos and you guys were responsible for booking. I mean, I've told you this off air, like some of my favorite shows, most memorable shows to this day, but also some of the most chaotic, lawless, dysfunctional, just crazy punk rock shows ever. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah. I, and I just, I'm so dumbfounded <laughs> that we got away with what seriously, we did. I mean, for anybody seriously. listening who doesn't know, like Danville is a, really really rich uh quiet town and the grange hall is this rental hall in the middle of a very well-to-do suburban neighborhood uh that absolutely should not have tolerated the shows that we had put on there and it's just an anomaly that they were able to keep going no that's that's the word anomaly (laughs) because i mean i this is the bay area it's like we have some of the most legendary venues and bands, uh, some of the nicest neighborhoods, some of the worst neighborhoods, like, you know, it's a checkerboard, but it's pretty crazy to think that, you know, in the nineties when punk rock is exploding and half, you know, half of the bands out there are probably trying to sound like green day and offspring and whoever else you have this like very reactionary barrier scene that, I mean, a lot of it, like some of it, yes, was political. A lot of it was very anti-political and <laughs> yeah, just yeah, kind of just like, in between. just kind of like, uh, you know, again, like a very, very drug influenced scene, very alcohol, alcohol fueled scene, you know, and just like a lot of just chaos and lawlessness. And you guys were almost like the babysitters of, uh, just because you know you just wanting to bring this shit to your area and to expose your friends and these other kids like you to this music that you love you know and you want to share it and you're like you want it to grow but in doing that you're also inviting this element into your area and you're kind of you know you're responsible you know you're responsible for it so you want to talk about well, what I mean, that was, was like really bizarre because you got you had young kids like me who just lived in the area and didn't have any other access and didn't know what they were walking into and people coming from, I mean, all over the Bay area and other parts of Northern California um, to go to the, to go to these shows. And it was, it was just blew me away. The very first show we did, how many people actually traveled to go to that show. Uh, The very first one we booked was um, YFH loaded El Dopa, Oppress Logic, uh, Good Old Boys, Sub Incision, Eight Face, and Fang. Wow. And that's a stacked show. Yeah. Like, and that's like honestly, just hearing the name, uh, hearing all the, the all those bands just together, it's like you're invite <laughs> you were inviting trouble to Danville. Just hearing those all those bands together, it's like, wow, this is this is gonna be this is gonna be some shit. So how in addition to the turnout, how was the show? What was the atmosphere of that show? So uh, there, 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 there was some, 
some tension at the show. Uh, there was some people that that weren't happy that that Fang was playing. Uh, Fang had just started playing again, and there there was a lot of people in the scene that that took issue um, with some of the things that had happened with with the lead singer, which I'm not going to get into because that's his business. But I mean, it yeah, was if you want to know. Of, if you want to know the history of Fang, feel free to Google it, but that's not something we're going to speak on on this episode. So do your homework. Yeah, but, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, but th- there was a little bit of tension there and I was kind of concerned about that because uh, there were people that, that were unhappy that they were on the bill. Um, How, what was, what was your attitude about that situation? Like you didn't, so that was actually, that was, actually, were you, were, uh, can, well, uh, without getting into specifics, were you oblivious to what had happened? When I had booked him on the bill, I was I was completely oblivious okay. to okay. what had happened. Yeah. Um, but you know, what I will say is So you know, we're just pleading ignorance ignorance here. <laughs> but you were it's well, okay. Yeah. You were what? You were fifteen, sixteen? Yeah, I was I was just a young kid, and I knew they were this this legendary Bay Area punk rock band, and yeah, I with a very 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 controversial past. I cannot em- emphasize enough to whoever's listening. Uh, you could say trigger warning or whatever else. It's not something I care to speak on because it's not something I condone. It's um, it was a very sad, tragic, fucked up, disturbing situation, and I'm just gonna leave it at that. But yeah, Fang came back after all that. So you were, I mean, how many shows had they played by the time you booked them? I They had played uh, a handful of shows, but I don't think they were actively touring like they, they started doing uh, later on. So they had only played a few times, and I think that's why the, the con- controversy was still still fresh. I mean, unfortunately, we did have we did have Ojo Rojo on the bill and they backed out because of their booking. Oh really? Which, yeah, that was unfortunate. Yeah. Um, I'm somehow not surprised, but, uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, given that they had female members in the band, but anyway, uh, fuck that would have, that would have been an amazing show with Ojo Rojo and all that together. You know? Wow. That's like damn near. That's like the shit gets smashed comp plus Fang. (laughs) <laughs> like the live version of that comp. Exactly. Exactly. Plus YFH throw them on there too. Wow. Yeah. And they're like, to be fair too, they, I feel like they played most of those shows. Like. think. Well, they did. I mean, Carlos was in the band and he was helping book him. And then later on, he started doing the Rakoto fests on his own. Um, so, so of course he's going to play and, those shows, but, and it, I love Carlos. Uh, but yeah, I don't think anybody was throwing YFH on shows back then or really giving them a chance. You know, like just in general, especially clubs like Gilman, like the door was not open to so many bands. You know, me and whoever else talked about it on their episodes. And unfortunately, Gilman just really wasn't receptive to a lot of stuff at that time, you know? No, they they weren't. And YFH was one of those bands that was being intentionally obnoxious. And, and they, they didn't they give, yeah, they didn't give a time. fuck. They did not give a shit, you know. But yeah, the, I mean, the, despite all that, the show ended up going surprisingly well. I mean, for all the fears we had of the police shutting it down and 
the type of crowd that we were drawing in there. Cause at that point that hadn't really been done before. I mean, they, they had done some hardcore shows at the Grange hall, which is where we got the idea to book there. But there's a big difference between putting on a hardcore show that draws a crowd of kids and guys in hoodies and backwards ball caps and a show that attracts a bunch of crazy looking hair, uh, mohawk hair, yeah, Liberty Spike, drunk, covered in patches, whatever. Yeah, that it was a whole different ball game uh, <laughs> than yeah. than what Danville was expecting. And we actually we learned a lesson from that show because we did get a lot of police visits from that show. Uh, again, I'm shocked they didn't shut it down. But what we learned and ultimately, we yeah, ultimately show, everybody played right. Every yeah, the show finished off without a hitch. Um, and do you know what attendance had, was that night? Roughly, or we had close to 200 people. I mean, it was a really good crowd. That's for a first show, and considering the status and like you know the level of the names that you had on the bill, I'd say that was a, a success. You know, like, yeah, yeah. I mean, I thought so too. I mean, we uh, we were there until. I mean, the funny part of the story was is we were responsible for cleaning up the hall. And they do jazzercise there in the morning <laughs> after the show. And is it? So, it's like a daycare center too, right? <laughs> they do that during the week too. They have yeah, like line and dancing, and it's all kinds line of dancing, crazy shit. Jazzercise, daycare. Yeah, but you know, we're, we're just for the record too. How? Uh, what's the capacity of that of the hall? So I think the hall uh, capacity is only was only between 250 and 300 people. Okay. So I mean, yeah. we, we, cause we I feel like it's pretty big, but like just from a legal perspective, I don't know. Yeah. Cause I know we talked about that tiger army show and like in my head, it wasn't that crowded, but there were a lot of people there. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. Cause when we get to that, show, it's, it's a big room, but let's yeah let's not jump forward let's let's stay on uh let's stay on the fang thing so so the first show's a, a su- success why can't i fucking talk <laughs> the first show but, was I a mean, success and um yeah what was the what was the one to there, follow up cleaning up beer cans and the jazzercise ladies are rolling in and we're still mopping up spilled beer and puke from from the bathrooms in there i mean it from was the night before from the night before wow so how long did it take you to clean up uh so I think the show, by the time the bands loaded out, it was close to one in the morning, um, and we were responsible for cleaning the entire parking lot and the hall. So we were there until uh, six thirty or seven in the morning. Wow. So what was the what was the second show? So the second show, and I wish I had a flyer for it to to remember specifically. Um, but it was supposed to be snap her, but they ended up canceling. Unfortunately, they had a, they had a family emergency. I was really excited to bring them, them up from LA. And then we had a press logic. We had YFH. We had a couple of other local bands, but what was really cool about that show is we had low life on the bill before they were really playing in the hardcore scene. Um, so that was, that was my first introduction to, to low life. Okay. And that would have been 98, 97. Yeah. Yeah. It would be in that 97, 98 range. Like okay. I said, I'm a, so much has happened that, that it's, it's hard to, yeah, are, it's a blur. I don't blame you. 
Um, but you didn't, let's see, I want to talk about Grimple and some of those Grimple shows. So this would have been before or after that Fang show. So this, that would have happened after, because at that point they had, there, there had never been a show like that at the Grange Hall. Okay. Uh, so the, the, and the Grimple reunions came slightly after, after that. Yeah. Yeah. Cause those were some crazy shows. Like, and, uh, that was something that, did you help Carlos out with those or? So that was, I believe that was just Carlos's thing. Um, because by the time that Grimple reunion had happened, I believe I was, uh, I was already working towards the, the seven inch and cause the next show I did after that was actually on my own. And that was the, uh, the distillers fury 66 uh nerve agents sworn vengeance and all of that's off show that was after that was way after that was after grimple yeah we're we're fucking up our timelines here um because oh, and it's all good but uh no that um sworn vengeance all bets off was 99 that was summer of 99 okay okay so then yes it would have been earlier but the so, grimple yeah. the grimple shit would have been 97 98 somewhere in there but because yeah. uh, what happened was okay, so Grimple got back together when Lucky Dog from Fifteen committed suicide, and then they had it was Filth, uh, Grimple, and I in Exodus. They played a show, and then Grimple came back after that. Yeah, and they did that. It was at it was at that kind of warehouse venue in Oakland, right? They they did yeah. that. Yeah. Not punks with presses. Was it? It could have been. <laughs> that was the longest pause we've ever had on the show. Because um, <laughs> I remember. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad I could be a record breaker. Hey, uh, you know, it, <laughs> it's all good. Hey, I'm good at those kind of records. I remember once on hardcoremusic.com, I got voted the worst dancer in the scene. So. Oh, no, 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 no. There were worse. There were worse. You're okay. (laughs) I could think of a couple right now, but I don't want to name them because they follow Neanderthal. (laughs) You'll have to tell me. I'll tell you when when we stop recording. I'll text you right now. (laughs) I don't want to make anybody feel bad. Um, but, but yeah, that, that Grimple, that Grimple show at the Grange was kind of an interesting experience for, for us both. Cause some of the shit that had gone down at that show. Um, so let, let's talk about, let's talk about that show. Let's talk about who played and let's talk about the climate of the barrier punk scene at that time. And I guess kind of like, I mean, we're spending a lot of time here talking about punk rock in the barrier. But I really can't emphasize enough how much of a connection these bands had to our scene and how closely connected they were and how many of these kids were going to both shows. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, what was going on in the Bay Area was not like what was going on in other places. I mean, people were going to a mix of shows. You know, people weren't just going to hardcore shows. Yeah, we didn't have the luxury of like, oh, we only want to see Agnostic Front or whoever. You know what I mean? It was like, no, nah, dude, like we're going to see the Boss Tones. We're going to see, I mean, our version of the Boss Tones was Link 80. You know, we'd go see Dystopia. We'd go see Oppressed Logic. We'd go see 
screw 32 or swinging utters or everything spaz you know what i mean And those guys existed but but we never knew who the fuck they were when they just came up out of nowhere Mm. but as far as i don't know i'm i don't want to i don't want to beat a dead horse here but like just being able to like kind of set the tone of like what the barrier was at that time a lot of this shit wasn't happening at powerhouse shows you know but there was some pretty questionable suspect shit that would happen at punk rock shows in the Bay Area, you know, and at the same exact venues, you know? Yeah. So, um, <laughs> and I think, who I think were, with the location, who were the troublemaker bands? Sorry to cut you off, but who were the troublemaker bands of, yeah, of that scene and of, of that night? I mean that of that night was was the band Dead Smurfs from I believe Concord. And yeah. And that's where I'm from. So yeah. So I kinda wanna get I kinda wanna get an outsider perspective on this because I know I mean I know the ins and outs of all this shit. But maybe you can kind of explain it for whoever's listening and just kind of let people know what the deal was back then with that and with them. So the the Dead Smurfs were a band from Concord and they were definitely sketchy as far as how they came across. Uh, sketchy whether, in what or not, way? whether or not they were actually actual Nazis, I don't know for sure, but they would rep that shit. Whether or not it was to piss someone off or because they believe it, they were still kind of repping that shit. Yeah. And the friends that they rolled with acted the same way. Yeah, well, I think I think their friends were into it. You know, I, the, whether or not the band was serious is one thing. They had some friends that were very serious, you know, and they were, you know, whatever. It was just look the other way type shit. You know what I mean? And kind of knowing the geography of the area, if you're not from the Bay, is, you know, surrounded by Concord at the time. You had, like, you had Pittsburgh, you had Antioch, you had Brentwood. In the time, those were kind of like more rural areas. I mean, we we we'd always call that out in the cuts to go out there. Yeah, and because well, they've the proximity- they've since sectionated a lot of those, you know, a lot of those areas, and like um, they've become a lot more racially mixed. You know, a lot of people moved out; they were forced to move out from. Uh, areas like from Oakland, from Oakland and San Francisco. Exactly. Exactly. So they've been relocated. Um, But at the time it wasn't, it wasn't like that. I mean, it was, it was the the cuts. Yeah, definitely. Concord was the big city to people who lived out there. Yeah. I mean, well, we've, we have over a hundred thousand people, but it's kind of like, like land's end. You know what I'm saying? Like as far as the Bay area goes, it's like, we were the last stop for BART. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like, you go any any further past Concord, it's kind of hard to be like, yeah, this is still the Bay Area. You know what I mean? Like, Concord is very much Bay Area. Like, I don't give a fuck what anybody fucking says. I'm from Concord, motherfucker. Like, <laughs> this is the motherfucking Bay. You know, but people who are from, it's like, you're from Oakley. It's like, you're from the Delta. You're not from the Bay. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's like, you're from Modesto or Stockton. You're like, you're not from the Bay. You're that, inland. That you're like, yeah, exactly. You're in some farm country, you know, but- Concord is kind of the last, that's the last stop, you know, where it's like actually still the Bay Area, but you also start to bump into these backwards, ignorant motherfuckers who are just, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, 
they're just living in their little bubble of ignorance. You know what I mean? And yeah, yeah that's and that's man. where I grew up. So I don't really want to tell the story and be like self-inflated talking about like what it was like to be in Concord or whatever. You know what I mean? So again, I kind of want to like let you carry this, but yeah, just uh, letting people know what what was it like back then, just dealing with this shit and like wanting so, to go yeah, to see I mean, bands was... like Grimple and knowing that dudes like the Dead Smurfs and their friends were going to come out. So, I mean, I had, I had warned Carlos, you know, about the, the dead Smurfs, kind of like I got the same warning about, about what was going on, um, uh, with Fang before I was aware of what was going on with them. I think he was oblivious to that fact. And then I remember being in the back parking lot of the, of the Grange and seeing a dude fucking skateboarding around and he had a swastika on his shirt and it wasn't the guy with the fear shirt. There was, there was a dude that was straight up sporting a swastika and the crowd started to get riled up and people started talking shit to them. And I know that, that one guy who was, who was, had the balls to go up and confront them ended up getting, getting punched. Yeah. He got socked in the face. Yeah. And then everybody's just standing there watching it. I remember a guy just running out there screaming. It's just like, these guys are fucking Nazis. You're just going to let them hang out at the show. Nobody's going to do anything. And nobody. And how, how old would we have been? I think I want to say I was like 15 years old. Yeah. I mean, we, we were, we're, it would have had to have been 15. And so this would have been like, I want to say it was like late 97. Like September, October ninety seven, somewhere in there, you know, like school had started. You know what I'm saying? Like but Yeah, I mean that's that's that sounds like a good timeline. I mean, yeah, I would have been fifteen years old at that time. Um so what and in, I in retrospect I wish I wish I I had stepped up, but I mean it I was I was a fucking kid at the time. I mean we I were children. I, we were fucking yeah, children. We were children. And I mean, that was, and for whoever's listening, this was like, I kind of wanted to do this because not like a woe is me thing or anything like that. But I think that, all right, those images of the coquetry, right. And floor punch and everything. People have falsely spread and misconstrued stories about the, about the barrier and just created a false narrative and a false context for things. People have glorified things that they had no fucking parts of and they were not around for. They missed and they weren't even born when that shit was happening. Um, They definitely weren't. They weren't smashing Nazis. They weren't punching anybody in the face. Um, Yeah, I mean, like, it's honestly, it's offensive to me. Like, a lot of stuff is offensive to me because I grew up, you know, as as a Jew in Concord with the shit in my face, you know, and, um, it does bother me, you know, seeing, seeing kind of like people false claim, you know, regarding situations regarding, you know, white supremacists at shows. But again, we're 15 years old and nobody was fighting anybody. We were all pretty scared, you know, cause how many, how many of them were there? Like 30, 40? Yeah, I mean they were they were rolling deep, but there was still more people at the show. There was way more people at the show, but they all had 
you know, bigger dudes than us. You know, we're all young punk rock kids and nobody in the main thing was nobody was unified. You know, nobody was unified. And I just I'll never forget that guy who was screaming. It's like these are fucking Nazis and and we're just going to stand here and do nothing. And everybody just continued to stand there and everybody just, and, yeah. And like those and that dudes, was a low point in, in the Bay area music scene at that point, because I mean, they, they rolled deep and, and nobody had done anything. And that, that show I, was I've never seen Nazis rolling to a show that deep in the Bay. I mean, that show was absolutely, yeah, absolutely demoralizing. And, um, I mean, that's not even the craziest thing that happened. So that was the night that Jody rest in peace. Uh, same Jody. Yeah. Um, so basically for whoever's listening without getting into whatever and glorifying whatever, somebody at the show produced a knife, rather large knife. (laughs) But, uh, the thing about pulling a knife out on somebody is you have to be willing to use it. Most people aren't impressed by just seeing a knife. Uh, and this guy had no intention to use it. So he was very quickly chased back to his car. And um, in the process, he hit our friend on the way out with his car and ran him over in front of all of us, um, which was a pretty crazy thing to see as a 15-year-old kid because I basically thought that I watched my friend die right in front of me. You know, thankfully he was okay. But yeah, uh, I mean, that was, I think we were all expecting the worst. And for, but it was a pretty disturbing, it was a pretty disturbing moment. And considering the root of it was all these fucking Nazi pieces of trash terrorizing us and nobody really having the balls to fight back. You know, it was a pretty, like you said, it was, it was a really a low point for the barrier punk rock scene. Um, Go ahead. It, it was. And I think that's something that doesn't get talked about enough because I think that's why we're bringing it up now, because honestly, I'm, I want to, I kind of want to call out like some of you keyboard warriors and some of you guys follow me or follow Neanderthal. Um, I appreciate your support, but don't talk about it. Be about it, you know? And unfortunately we came from a generation where, I'm sitting here saying that, yeah, that night I was 15 years old and uh, I grew up as a kid, you know, dealing with whatever in my neighborhood and at school. And I was bullied at times and I did fight back, but punk rock was a place of refuge for me and shows were a place of refuge. And I didn't go to shows to fight. You know, that wasn't something that I wanted to do at shows. And the culture well, at that age, it was just about the music and for us to be a part of exactly. Part of the music. I mean, <clears throat> exactly. And we were just discovering this thing that we felt that it was important to us. And, um, we were connecting and we were connecting with people. We were making friends. We were finding our identity and to have it threatened, um, and to have our safety threatened by people that they had a hateful agenda you know, and they were preaching ignorance and, uh, they were just trying to ruin our good time, you know, with no, no regard for anything, you know? So, and, and, and there wasn't any recourse for them, for them being there. Yeah. And again, I say this, this was not, this was not a powerhouse show. This was not a hood show. This was not a, whatever people have in their heads. Barry hardcore is show. 
This was an oppressed logic, Grimple. Who else was on the show? Eight Face? YFH? YFH was playing. Uh, I don't remember if Eight Face played that show or not. I believe they I feel only like, played the one show. The I range. feel like they played a couple Grimple shows, but I could be blurring them. So my, my mistake. Yeah, I think they just did the one grain show. So I don't think they were on that bill. But yeah, Press Logic was on there. Uh, YFH was on there. Grimple and Dead Smurfs are the four bands that I can remember being on that bill. Yeah. And I don't remember seeing Dead Smurfs after that. I don't think they No, got, they no, got, they, they nobody booked their them. Name never came up again. <laughs> nobody booked them anymore. But, um, but like, so, okay. What, so conversely, I kind of like, again, I, I really wanted to set the tone and not to make it so somber and dark and like, like, um, dismal or whatever, you know, but that show was a major turning point psychologically for kids like me and kids like you and whoever else was there to where we were like, fuck this shit never again, you know? And after that point, a lot of kids started really, I mean, I can't think of a show since then to where those guys showed up in such numbers and in such force, you know, but at any just slight appearance of anything resembling that we would squash it from then on out. Yeah. I mean, it was dealt with fast. I mean, like was it was zero. It, it, it went, a few of them. it went from being kind of like, you know, like, what do we do? Like, we're scared. Like nobody really wanted to make the first move the guy who kind of tried to stand up or the couple guys who tried to stand up to the situation, you know, they were either beat up or chased away or whatever, you know, and the rest of the punks weren't unified in as much as, you know, this is the Bay area. This is a place of tolerance and acceptance and diversity and whatever, but we preach all these things, unity and whatever. And nobody was united enough to stand up, stand up against evil. Nobody. No, they weren't. And I think, I think people were, way too complacent about the tolerance and the diversity that existed in the Bay area. And I think a lot of people in the punk scene were so used to like-minded people that felt that way, that that they didn't know how to react. Not seen something like that before. Yeah. They didn't know how to react. And I mean, I can say for myself definitively, that was a show that I just told myself, like I'm never dealing with this shit ever again. And anytime that shit was around me and I'm not taking credit for anything, Obviously, there's people way older than me and whoever else, you know, from way before our time that did most, you know, did most of the heavy lifting. But for kids of our generation, that show was a major turning point to where we said, we're not going to allow this shit to happen anymore, you know, and then conver- and, and it didn't happen and it didn't, you know, and conversely, I mean, uh, you booked. Now I want to talk about that pressure point show. I, I think that's, that's, yeah. That's, so I, uh, I want to transition into that. So we're going, I'm setting it up as ultimately it's, this is the low point of punk rock in the Bay area and just feeling like defeated, you know, like the Nazis won, they won tonight. You know what I mean? And fast forward, you book pressure point, also oppressed logic, same, one of the same bands, same venue. Um, you, you had low life, correct. Doomsday or doomsday, doomsday device. device was on that bill. Yep. Sworn vengeance. And did talk is poison play. Talk is poison did not play. No. Okay. My bad. You, you've booked them though at Granger, right? 
No, I did not book talks. Talk talk. Really? And that was not. Maybe that was. Maybe that was Carlos. Okay, my bad. Okay, I definitely saw them at Grange. Talk is Poison is amazing, by the way. I don't know if you're a fan of them, but I thought they were great. They're a great band, but I can't take credit for that one. <laughs> All right, well, let's... But yeah, so it was Low Life, Storm Vengeance, Oppressed Logic, Doomsday Device, and Pressure Point. Yeah, and so this is November during, 1999. I actually posted the flyer on Neanderthal. Um, yeah, November 12th. Is that what it was, November 12th? Yep. Okay, so this was, I'm going to say it on air, to this day, one of my favorite shows of all time. Like one of the most fun shows I'd ever been to before, since I have amazing memories of the show. And I'm going to let Matt tell it. Um, Cause I just, whatever you tell it, man, you did it. You made it happen. And it was a great moment in Beria hardcore. So, I mean, it was, first of all, I mean, it was a fantastic crowd. I mean, you had skinheads there you had hardcore kids and you had all the punk rockers for press logic and it was a mix of, of everything. And for the yeah. most part, um, like some awesome diversity and tolerance for the most part, you know, Absolutely. which wasn't, which wasn't always commonplace in the scene back then. You know, the and scenes were very segregated those, and yeah. crowds did not always mix. But on this you, particular when, night, they, they were mixing and everybody was having they, fun. They absolutely did. And sometimes, you know, the, the punk rockers will, will see the, the hardcore dancing and they'll take it wrong and they'll end up being a scuffle over it. And that didn't happen that night. I mean, everybody did their thing and danced their own way. And there was absolutely no problems. I mean, I remember a fantastic crowd reaction to a press. Well, there logic. wasn't absolutely no problems, but we're going to get to that. <laughs> but well, uh, there, there was no problem there was no problems mi- yes there was no problems minus one individual who met a very unfortunate end to his night so a very very unfortunate i'm, <laughs> I'm sure yeah so that, all right so what happened remembers it to this day what happens oh so, i'm sure he's still feeling it to this day so i remember during a press logic set uh I didn't see how it started, but my understanding was, is he was Z guiling yes. Gabe from low life. Yes. Gabe walked and, in, Gabe walked in the show. He had a backpack on and he, his backpack was full of the red. It was the red low life shirt, like their famous shirt, you know? And he worked at Cinderblock at the time and he had screen printed him like that day at work and brought him to the show for sale. And he walked in the show, and I think he had freshly shaven his head. So here's this bigger dude with tattoos, a shaved head, and a goatee. And what does old what does old buddy decide to do? Not Gabe, our unfortunate. Uh, what what or whatever what whatever we're gonna call him. He didn't know what he was signing up for, but he started throwing up salutes and. <laughs> Man, uh, I mean, I have to say, I mean, I, I have seen, I have seen some beatdowns, uh, been a part of some shit, but I have never seen anybody get fucked up like that guy did. I yeah. mean, he was, he, he was, was pretty beat bad. up. He was drugged down, drugged down the stairs of, of the Grange, drug across the gravel of a parking lot while everybody is kicking and stomping him. When I, I say the whole place, point, the whole place beat the shit out of him. I mean, the whole place beat the shit. out. Yeah. Of him. I mean, that, that, that's not an exaggeration. <laughs> I mean, the whole place cleared out to get their, to get their piece in. And I remember at one point he was, 
somebody somebody standing on each side of him pulled him up by his arms and people were just taking shots at him and holding him holding him up and yeah i mean he was he was made a mess of yeah and and it was to go from what we were dealing with at grimple to to having absolutely no tolerance for that shit happening was i mean it, it needed to happen i mean it was just they sending, it was like just establishing a tone and sending a message of like, no more, zero tolerance. You know, it's like, and it's like, kind of like, it's like rats or mice or something. It's like, well, there's one, there's more. You know what I'm saying? Well, yeah, it's I like, mean, you feel comfortable enough to come. That means your friends are going to feel comfortable enough and you know what I mean? And so on and so on and whatever. But not that we're sitting here glorifying Nazi smashing, but what was the energy like in the room after that happened? I think everybody felt like they were, they were a part of, of doing something that needed to happen. I mean, like you said, not necessarily glorifying the violence, but it's just like, it was, everybody had, was of the same purpose and the same mission. It's like, this shit can't happen and it can't be here. I mean, it's, it's really, it's so hard to articulate. Um, I would have been, I guess, 17 years old. At, at the time when the show happened. So this is a couple years later after, you know, that Grimple show. But again, it's the same exact venue with some of the same bands and a lot of the same kids in the crowd, you know? And we went from being kids in fear, you know, being scared of these guys and feeling like, yo, they could just kind of show up whenever they want. And again, the barrier hardcore scene in the 90s was a very small thing. And it was, I mean, there were certain bands and certain people that were involved that were, you know, heavy hitters and, and, you know, big dudes in that, in our scene. But I mean, really like a lot of the people that became the hardcore scene and, you know, in the two thousands is like, we were all still kind of just figuring it out. You know what I'm saying? It's like you had, yeah, I mean, you know, you had we... Trisomy 21, you had Antagony, you had Boof, you had 240. You know what I mean? It's like people, you know, it was like the people of our generation, you know what I'm saying? Like the younger, I mean, I say younger, now we're all 40 years old, but, <laughs> but at the time well, at we the were time, teenagers. We, we were the kids of the scene. I mean, we I mean were the, the reality was like what the hoods was, was like the most representative band of the hardcore scene of what we had because I mean, power exactly. But those, those were dudes playing, were a little bit older old too. school at that point, you know, exactly. they were doing their thing. Exactly. Those guys were kind of the generation above us. And that's, that's kind of what I mean of like nothing but love and respect to all those bands and those guys, you know, that's what came before us and that's what made us who we are, you know, but eventually we kind of all had to establish our, you know, our independence and have our bands and you know what I'm saying? So we couldn't just rely on on people to protect us, you know? So, I mean, the shit that was going on at some of those shows, you know, like, again, that that's going from the low, the low, low, low point to almost the moment where it's like, yo, like, we did it. Yeah. These fuckers I mean, are, at- these fuckers are gone and they're not going to come back, you know? And this is like, this is, and we're talking about two shows here. There was lots of shows. <laughs> there was lots of other shows where whoever would pop up and little shit would pop off. But these two specific shows are very heavy in my mind of kind of like this, almost this like, um, 
you know, it was like the gauge of like the temperature of like, yeah, this is how bad it can be. And like, yeah, this is how far we came. Yeah. I mean, this is what happens when everybody sticks together. Exactly. Exactly. Like when we all stand for the same shit, there's, we don't have to worry. You know what I mean? When everybody's united in what's right and what's wrong, then we can have, we can have mixed shows. We can have shows with skinhead bands, punk bands, hardcore bands together. No fights. The only person that's, you know, that was fight or the only person that got hurt was the person who was fucking the Nazi piece of trash. You know what I mean? The guy who was trying to fucking Zeke Heil yeah, in the, the pit. Yeah, the one that just needed to get the fuck out of there. The one who, and the one who was trying to flex on other people prior to that, you know, which yeah. is why that shit happened, you know, because he was trying to instigate fights. And then on top of that, it, it's like, oh, you want to take your shirt off? Oh, you're Nazi. You're fucking Zeke Heiling people. It's like, yeah. That you're not you're not making friends like that, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, but and you're not intimidating anybody either. Exactly, and we just that's exactly it is. And speaking for myself, I went from being 15 and kind of scared and thinking, yeah, I don't want to come to shows to fight. This is my escape from all that shit at home and at school and in the neighborhood and whatever. But you know what? I love this shit so fucking much that I, I'm going to defend it. You know, and that's how we all felt. And I'm speaking for myself, but I'm speaking for all of us. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's like, that's how we all felt. And that moment was like, it just felt like you, as corny as it sounds, it felt like real unity. It was the closest, it it was the closest thing I've ever experienced to like actual unity in the scene in my whole, like my whole 27 years of going to shows. You know, I I remember, I mean, I was, I mean, I, I had some obvious concern because I had, I had other worries cause I was booking the show. My name's on this shit. So I had, and that you don't to want to get about. sued, but, even, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, even with all that in mind, like I knew this needed to happen. So it wasn't even like you weren't losing sleep. Over didn't it. Ha- I wasn't losing sleep over it. It's like, this sucks. What comes will come, but it had to happen. Yeah, Absolutely. And then after that, again, the the whole energy of the show just shifted and transitioned. And we went from, I don't know, it was like we were on top of the world. And it was like, seriously, the most fun. And I, I mean, it's not like, it's like one guy got beat down. Big fucking deal. You know, real tough of all of us to beat the shit out of one guy. You know what I'm saying? But just, you know, it's that, that wasn't the point. You know what I mean? It was like, it was about being unified and, Oh, he represents this. That's we have no place for that here. Yep. You know what I'm and saying? Everybody. I mean, the, the the tone of that show. You keep talking about how the mood shifted. I mean, I will never forget the pressure point set that occurred after. Yeah. That and just the way the crowd was into it. I mean, yeah. Everybody. It was you know, amazing. All the punk rockers and skinheads and hardcore kids. They were all piling on each other. Like and, I, I'm singing along. It was so cool. It's so cheesy. I'm literally. I have chills right now thinking about it. Like physically, I have goosebumps thinking about it. You know what I'm saying? This is like, it's the most pure version, the most exemplary version of this thing that we love in my mind, you know, in my, in my memory, you know, and to see punks and hardcore kids and skinheads and everybody dancing, everybody having fun. And that was the only situation the whole night, you know, and to be fair, there were some very rough and rugged individuals at that show, you know, and, you know, at those shows, really anything can happen at any given moment. 
So the and fact they did that, happen. I mean, it's like I've I've at seen lo- shows at lots where, of shows, but I mean at that at that particular show, everybody was just like, dude, we're having fun. You know what I mean? Like we're just like whatever. We got that out of the way. Now we can have fun again. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it was just like and that was the first that was the first ever Sworn Vengeance weapon show. So that was a whole different element that made that show fun. You know, and made and, and, and they started throwing out the weapons and everybody started dancing with the weapons. What so, I, what I so first of all, like before we get into it, explain what that means. Cause saying sworn saying weapon show, that sounds fucking insane. If you're not from the barrier, you don't know what that means. So what is what is a sworn vengeance weapon show and what what happened at that show? So they started uh throwing out toy weapons, you know, swords, axes. And people are just dancing with all these toy weapons. I mean, it was it was fun. Well, not just school. throwing out crazy. toy toy weapons. They went to Chinatown in San Francisco and they bought like two hundred dollars worth of plastic swords, bow staffs, Hulk gloves, sockum boppers, like yep. those, like the you know the tin, the frying pans and stuff, like the the foil ones for barbecues and all that kind of shit. And like, well, that was the next thing that I was going to make is when they throw when they threw out all of the weapons and everybody had gone crazy on those, and they started throwing out the tin foil. And <laughs> you know, you think these like tin foil fryers, it's like stupid, whatever. But I mean, people were getting cut up by yeah. by breaking this tin foil everywhere yeah. and, and hitting people with this jagged foil, and it was it was nuts. People were kicking the sock and bopper. There was dodgeballs. They're getting kicked up in the ceiling and knocking the tiles out. And like, yeah, I mean, I don't know. It was just, it was chaos, but in the, in the most innocent, pure form, you know, it was just like ridiculous to see people moshing with like size and like throwing stars and swords and plastic battle. Yeah. Yeah, Like wiffle ball bats or whatever. You know what I mean? It was like, I can't remember all the things, but I definitely remember Holt gloves and sock and boppers for sure. And uh, as far as I know, um, the first, well, that was the very first weapon show. And then it became a, it became their gimmick for a little bit and it became like a reoccurring theme. But as far as I know, the rumor was that doomsday device was actually the one that thought of that. Do, do you know, or can you confirm or deny? I cannot confirm or deny that. Okay. that is, I'm uh, asking you all these questions you don't know the answer to. <laughs> That's my bad, though. I mean, I shouldn't be putting you on blast like well, that. Well, you know, if, it's very possible that it's just that. It just happened. Rumor, to, it just happened to happen at a show that you booked. So it's not like they coordinated it with you beforehand. Yo, Matt, is it cool if we throw all these plastic swords? Yeah, out yeah. Of the you crowd tonight? Throw plastic, plastic. Swords, it's cool, dude. Like, like uh, we'll, we'll put the tiles back every after everybody kicks them out. Like, so okay, you know, so. Speaking of the tiles, I don't think there was ever a grain show that I did that I got my deposit back from the show. That was was literally something damaged. That was literally what I was just about to ask you. Is so with all these shows and with all this madness, with all this crazy shit going on, because again, you've booked some of the most shows that I've ever been to. And they might not have they might not have been the biggest name out of town touring bands, you know, or like the biggest headliner or whatever, but they were the most fun and usually the best, the best mixed, you know, of different bills, bands from different sections of the scene, you know, but definitely the most chaotic, you know? So I would imagine that, yeah, you probably didn't ever get your deposit back. 
you also did um, a pretty, I guess, controversial record. Uh, it was the only release on your label, right? It was the only release on my label. Uh, yeah, one scene records. It what? was the Sworn Vengeance and All That's Off split seven inch. Okay, so um, you want to start with that? Yeah, let's start with that. Okay, so let's uh, get into the history. Um, so we were talking about before the label, you had the zine. And then you kind of came to the re- realization that you wanted to that you wanted to put out a record. And what? how did that come about? So that came about uh, because I knew some of the guys from Sworn Vengeance. And my buddy, Matt Harrison, uh, had close ties with Sammy and him and I were rapping and we wanted to do not, not rapping, but talking together. Uh, we were talking. <laughs> You're an MC now. Okay, sure. That's Go right. ahead. Yeah. I do it all. <laughs> so we're talking about doing a label together and, uh, we kind of start talking about which bands, uh, want to do it. And we thought that the all bets off sworn vengeance would be a great seven inch because at the time that seemed like a really good representation of what was going on with hardcore in the Bay Area. Uh, to me, they seem like the two the two most up-and-coming bands. You know, some of the other bands had already been established players for a long time. And these were the bands that were, you know, all that stuff had been doing their thing, but they had been increasing in popularity. And it seemed like Sworn Vengeance, once they made the switch from Downshift, uh, kind of were doing something different. They were kind of starting to dabble in kind of more of that that metal sounding hardcore that really wasn't being done a lot in the Bay at that time. Yeah, definitely. That sound was pretty new. And especially in California, there were some bands on the East coast, like you had, uh, you know, Marauder all out war, uh, Baltimore, you had next step up, uh, stigmata. I don't know who else, who else was really in that lane, but just that really heavy hard. I don't want to say tough guy. Cause that, or beat down. That's like just such a, throw up in my mouth fucking term but whatever <laughs> yeah i mean that, that's the wrong term because that's that's not what they were doing i think um, that that it's just kind of cheap to say that but those those dudes were definitely uh like kind of blazing new ground you know like or at least for the time anyway yeah absolutely i mean you had some some bands out of orange county that were they had their own style but they definitely kind of had that uh that metal sound as well that wasn't being done in a lot of places but uh, it, it didn't Lake. it didn't sound anything like Sworn Vengeance though. It wasn't as hard. Like even like I don't know, you had like the Adamantiums, the eighteen visions, and the throwdowns, et cetera, et cetera, like those O C bands, but I don't know. I think those guys were a lot more into like Sepultura and whatever else, you know, but it just didn't come out sounding anything like Sworn Vengeance. No, it didn't. I mean even even other bands you could think about like Hatebreed, which was kind of hard and dabbling in some metal stuff, there was still a lot of tough guy element to it too at the time. So, I mean, Sworn Vengeance seemed a little unique at the time because they were a lot more, I think, fast in that style. Definitely. Um, They were definitely unique, especially for the area, but really unique, all bets off. I mean, I don't think I can emphasize enough. (laughs) Like, how do we, how do we even explain or describe their sound? Especially back I mean, then, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think the best way to describe them is a band that had some people in it that were into hardcore and they were playing music. Yeah, it's just... That had some hardcore sounds. 
I don't even know what the fuck they were doing. I mean, there was like ska parts. Like, well, the songs on that record is uh, Arctic and The Remedy, right? Or the two yeah, moments they, off. Yeah, that one song with a, just a real funky kind of breakdown. Yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> just it weird. Almost- just weird. Like, I kind of, I don't know. Like, um, there were times where I, I, I didn't even know if they were like, are you guys being serious? Like, like <laughs> I just, I don't even know. Like, I don't know how to explain all this off. They were fun, but nobody sounded like them. See, and I think we all had that question about being, whether or not they were being serious. We just weren't going to ask Sammy that question. <laughs> Good call. So, okay. So that record would have come out, um, to my memory, I, I think summer 99, but you told me about a show that you booked that was basically a benefit show for that record, right? Yeah, correct. I mean, we were we were young kids. We didn't have money to put out a record, but we wanted to do it. So how do you get money? Well, let's put on a show. And what ended up happening for the show is my girlfriend at the time was going to school with Eric Ozine's brother. And so I have her. For those who don't know Eric Ozine from Redemption 87, Unit Pride, and Nerve Agents. Yep. great. Just had had to add that in there. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) For anybody who doesn't know, now you know. Not to name drop, but just just saying. Just saying. So, I mean, kind of of like the way that I've always done my business, like talking about earlier. I mean, I'm not afraid to just like go in there and try and try and get people to to do something, contact bands to interview, reach out for things like that. So here I am, I'm just, I'm just this kid and I'm still in high school trying to do this record label, reaching out to at the time, what was a legend. I mean, Redemption 87 was legendary status in the Bay. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, we all grew up on those records. So yeah, that's all you got to say. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, if you hear, if you heard Redemption 87, you know, but, so we got in contact with Eric Ozine and I had no idea how he was going to take it. I mean, you know, Hey, the nerve agents want to play this show in Danville. That's a benefit show for a couple of kids trying to start a hardcore record label. And he was all about it. I mean, not only did he, uh, not only did he agree to play the show with the nerve agents, but he also helped out the bill by bringing in fury 66 and the distillers which at the time would have been one of their first shows outside of LA before anybody knew who they were. So I just ended up having this show with legendary status bands and they were all willing to jump in and help these kids get money together to start a record label. That's amazing. That's the true spirit of hardcore right there. Older dudes absolutely showing the younger generation and giving them a position and a platform to do it themselves. That's what's up. Yeah. Yeah. And, and they were all willing to do it for free. You know, it's like they had no reason to help us out. They didn't know us, but they stepped in and they did it. And it just, that was one of the most remarkable experiences in, in my life, especially involved in, in the scene that, that these people were just willing to do that for kids. They didn't know. And, and, and do you remember the data of the show? I do not remember the exact date of the show. I want to say it was like April, May, 99. Does that sound right? It was, it was in the springtime. I know that. 
Okay. Because the the record came out in the summertime, so that would be right. Unfortunately, this is the one. This is the one with the flyer um, that Pete drew, and it's the the picture of of Tim Armstrong. Correct, and just hilarious story behind that. Yeah, great flyer. He did this fantastic pencil drawing of Tim Armstrong when he was in Operation Ivy, uh, picking his guitar at Gilman Street with kids reaching up and towards his guitar. Of course, at the time when he drew that, nobody had any idea that the distiller's lead singer was Tim's wife. So he draws this picture of Tim that looks like we're insinuating something about the show. <laughs> and it was kind of an embarrassing moment once we realized who the distillers actually were. Just a funny coincidence. Yeah, funny coincidence. No idea. That's funny. Uh, but, but that, that wasn't the show... Um... Were the cops called to this one? No. This one finished, right? Called. This one finished all the way through. I mean, we had a great crowd, great turnout. There was zero problems at that show. Because I do recall so. a nerve agent show where cops showed up and it was shut down. But that was about a year or so later, right? That was a year or so later. And I had not understood exactly how much nerve agents had blown up in that year and a half, two year time span. Cause gotcha. we bring him back to the Danville Grange and we just had no ability to deal with the crowd that showed up to that show. Yeah. I mean, they, they did, they really did blow up in a, in a short period of time. I mean, they put out when, once they put out days of the white owl, it was over. <laughs> I mean, their Gilman shows were insane. So that's so cool of Eric, just to like, just to look out and just to, like I said, just to want to give you guys a platform just to get things going. You know, he probably just, you know, like you said, he, he didn't know you guys on a personal level, but just seeing kids wanting to take the initiative that goes really far. You know, I could see why he wanted to help you guys. So, um, the record ended up actually coming out. Like I said, summertime, do you remember the month? I don't remember the month. Uh, there was, there was several, several delays of, of us finally getting the record. Um, cause I feel like it was out and again, I could be wrong, but I feel like it was out around July. Cause I remember I, I went to the warp tour, which was on 4th of July at Oakland Coliseum. And then we watched fireworks. There was a A's ticket that was included in the, the price of the concert, you know? So we got the, we got the show and then we got the A's game and the fireworks after, but I feel like. I'm almost positive there was a grain show the night before and all bets off had played. And I want to say I got the record at that show, but I See, could be wrong. A, I could be wrong. Yeah, We did do a record release that summer at the Grange for that record. And I'm just trying to remember. So that would have been, that would have been July 3rd, 99. Okay. But this is all just going off of blurred memories from 22 years ago. So <laughs> I apologize See, I mean, if I'm that, wrong. See though, I mean, you, you, this is why you're, you're, uh, you're cut out to do what you're doing because you've got a good memory for a lot of this stuff. <laughs> you know, I was, I was living in a well of useless information. <laughs> yeah. So I appreciate you being able to help me narrate the story of my life that fill in the gaps there. No problem. My pleasure. So, okay. So you guys did that record and how did it do? Like, did you guys sell or, um, how many did you press? Like, how was it? So, I don't want to say. I don't want to say. How was it performing? That sounds all like biz, but 
like you know were were, were you guys were you guys um in distros did you guys were you guys in stores were you doing mail order like what was it like to run a diy label putting out a split of two local bands kind of relatively unknown at the time i wouldn't say unknown but still on the come up still making a name for themselves before yeah, the I mean, internet they, they was really a factor i mean the internet existed but most of us weren't relying on the internet to discover bands yet i would say i mean like everything else it was just learning as we went uh I mean, we had a hard time fumbling how to actually produce the record. And so what, what did that, that entail? Because nowadays you got these kids do labels and they have places like Pirates Press and you can just hit up Pirates Press and they do everything all in one spot. And you get your, your download cards and they, they do the covers there. They have the, the slip covers. They'll, they'll print the lyrics, the poly bags, the vinyl, all of it is just done. But before... You, you used to have to go to separate places for each individual part of the record, right? That Yeah, that is correct. So uh, tell the kids we, what that was like. So while we were figuring that out, we had made enough money to produce the record and to get the poly sleeves for them, not to have the cover to that 7-inch. Because if I so recall, put, you guys had uh, photocopied covers for some of them, right? For a period of time, because... What happened was, is we learned that the printing was going to be a lot more of a cost than we thought it was. So we had this supply of records and we were only printing enough covers to be able to get out to shows. So you guys and did like a thousand or 500. Do you remember? Yeah, we did 500 in, uh, for the pressing of it. Okay. Did so, you get rid of all yeah. of them? We did not get rid of all of them. Oh, we'll, you, do you uh, still we'll, have we'll some? We'll get into that more later. I no, no, no. Don't, some. don't don't wait. Get it out now. We might not come back to it. That's the nature okay. of the interview. Uh, so you still have <laughs> some available. So if 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 anybody else out there wants a copy, hit up Matt. And what's uh, what's the best way? Instagram, email. Instagram is the best way to get a hold of me. Uh, Mattimus dot Maximus, or uh, or just get a hold of me on Facebook. All right, so if you want an OG original press, still left over from 99, Sworn Vengeance, All Bets Off, Split, get it, Matt. So sell it at cost, too, because I just want people <laughs> to enjoy the record. Awesome. All right. Yeah, no no eBay uh, eBay prices. Okay, no, so... we don't need to talk about that. <laughs> so this is, uh, again, we're back in uh, the summer of 99, and... How'd you guys put these things together? Like you have a pizza party or something, invite the homies over. What'd you do? So we, uh, once we realized that the printing was going to be, uh, a hard turnaround and we had a record release show, we go in with a box of records in the Kinko's and we come up with, I think we only had $150 and we just come up to the Kinko's guy and say, hey, here's the artwork. We have $150. Just print as many of these on color card as you can so we can get this out. And we ended up doing that the night before the record release show wow. so that we had them in the full package fully available. You know, because we were just we were kids. We were learning as we went. So it's like, oh, we you know, we have this benefit show. We, we make some some money doing it. But it all went to producing the record and getting the poly sleeves the cover artwork ended up being an additional cost 
that that we weren't including in our budget. So that was the situation we were in and trying to learn how to distro at the time. Uh, you know, cause I'm still been friends with Pete and I'm having, uh, to trying to hook up with him and have him help me out, teach me a little bit about the distro. But in that time frame, all we were doing is just driving around the Bay and hit, hitting up the, the local record stores and just selling them off to them, putting them on consignment. And then, um, just bringing them to all the hardcore shows we could and trying to sell them there. Just hustling. So we didn't, yeah, just hustling them. I mean, we did not get the distro. I think that record deserved, but again, you know, it was did ever, Evercade or any of those bigger distros. No, we did not ever get it through any of the bigger distros. That's unfortunate. It is. Well, feel free to hit up Matt and, uh, get some all bets off sworn vengeance records. Unfortunately, there was some controversy with that record. Yes. Uh, what was so, the deal? Well, so we'll, we'll be tasteful about it. We'll be tasteful about it. But what was the deal with that record? Because I'm sure most people will, a lot of people, unfortunately, didn't even really get to hear about that record or know about it. But no, they, those of us didn't. that do, a lot of us know that there was some, like I said, some controversy and some, some bullshit and dare say some beef behind it so what was the deal with that well there wasn't when the record came out but what i will say is something happened between sammy from all bets off and and ryan from sworn vengeance and they went at each other at a show and all of a sudden there was a lot of beef between those two bands uh sammy didn't come at me like it was a personal issue but he pretty much told me that he didn't want to see that record floating around yeah because of what was going on between those two bands yeah there was no um they definitely weren't fans of each other that's for sure no they they weren't and uh ryan never really shared his feelings with it to me but but sammy made it pretty clear at the time that he didn't want to see that record yeah so that made it pretty tough for you to uh, to get rid of these fucking things. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it absolutely did because that was the scene of people that would have been buying the record. Those were the people that that knew the bands, and I didn't have an advertising budget to kind of push it outside the scene. And you know, it's just just what what do you do when you're put in that situation? Yeah, um, it was just you, unfortunate. It was just yeah. unfortunate all around. Um, I mean, we don't really have to get into any further detail than that. They just, a couple of guys that didn't care for each other, that um, their bands ended up being on a split, and you were, unfortunately, the guy who put it out. <laughs> yep. Uh, yeah, I was the guy that put it out, and it was a shame because it was a part of the band not to, not, course, yeah, uh, history. Yeah, not to drum up old bullshit, but it happened, so... That's what we're doing is we're, we're preserving the history and we're talking about the history of our scene, you know? So moving past that, um, I mean, it's a great story how the record came together. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And I think it it was an important record. And for you personally, it was kind of the launching pad of some other stuff that you ended up doing and being involved, uh, in and with, um, you had had a relationship with Pete and Colby from being young and we had mentioned that uh, Colby was heavily, how do we say this? 
his time was being occupied by his um his career in the military. Uh Pete was still living in the area, correct? So Pete was still living in the area at the time, but he actually he moved to Salt Lake, I want to say in uh in 2000. So he ended up leaving the area, I believe um and after it, or during the release of the uh, straight edge comp. Okay. And that would have been uh breakout number four. So that would have been, um, I mean, Pete was involved in the label the whole time, correct? Yeah. He, he was, was always kind of like, uh, shout out Pete. He's kind of like the guy behind the guy behind the guy. Correct. Yeah. Like, I mean, that's Pete a swingers reference, were... but whatever. I mean, <laughs> I, th- I think Col- Colby's kind of the guy who, um, I think probably most people heavily associate with breakout, I'd say, but obviously both of you, you and you and Pete, um, you all, you all contributed, you know, you all contributed. It was all valuable, you know, but I think Pete is kind of the guy who maybe at times gets lost in the shuffle credit wise. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Cause he was there from the very beginning. I mean, he, he was involved in everything from the very beginning of that. So yeah, just um, shout out to Pete and thank you for um thank you for everything you did. I love all the breakout records and um hopefully we'll get you on the show at some point. So shout out Pete. But uh yeah, that was that would have been again breakout number four, correct? Yes. And the bands some of the bands on that um on that comp, I mean, the, I think that was the first time a lot of us heard Above This World, right? Uh, I believe that was the, yeah, because that was prior to them coming out with the full length. So we had Above This World on that comp. Uh, we had Clear on that comp. Which Adamantium. Me personally, is Adamantium, yeah. Clear um, is awesome. That Clear song, hey, I'm saying it right here. It's on recording. You better put that fucking Clear song on your mix. <laughs> oh, yeah. Ab- That's going on there. <laughs> That's going on there. You can dedicate it to me. Uh, yeah, I mean, that fire walk with me that's the one that's a banger yep but yes yeah, yeah, i had so, never heard them before that song really that was my yeah. introduction to them as well that um, was my first exposure to them and then 18 visions you guys had adamantium throwdown brothers keeper who uh, else Sword... champion was on there no no champion burden was champion on there. was not on there no. Bert, okay burden was on there um hold on i'm gonna pull it up on discogs before we just start making shit up (laughs) (laughs) we don't want to rewrite history no no i know for a fact uh sworn vengeance was the only band that was on both that comp and the uh california hardcore comp and rely was on there too right i believe they were so that would have been that would have been their only appearance on a, a breakout record. There's a flyer uh, for we're jumping back to breakout number one, but there's a flyer that I've seen that had different bands listed on. Uh, uh, so yeah, there's a flyer that I've seen. That's an advertisement for breakout number one, the California hardcore comp that has bands listed on it. That didn't end up being on the comp. Do you know why that is? That is a good question. You just brought up something that I was unaware that was that was an issue. Okay. Wow. Yeah. So um, I believe uh, there's one. Let's see. I've got it saved. Let me pull it up in my phone. All right. 
Feature songs from. All right, so this is the original advertisement, not who ended up being on the comp. But I have this flyer. I'm looking at it, okay? Featuring songs by Strife. Didn't happen, obviously. Ignite. They're on there. Yep, Ignite's on there. AFI. Redemption 87. Second Coming. Force Life. Hoods. Built to Last. Nonus and Victim. Powerhouse. All those bands were on there. Okay. Capture the Flag. Doomsday Device. I Madman. They're not on there. Those three, none of them. Uh, Model American. Yes, they were. Downshift also did make it onto the comp. Rely did not. And it says, and more. So, yeah. So it says. Basically, long story short, the bands that didn't make it but are advertised, Strife, um, Capture the Flag, Doomsday Device, Doomsday I, Device, I'm Madman, Rely. And if I missed another one, my bad, but pretty interesting. So, so Rely did make it onto the Straight Edge comp, but that would be a question for Pete or Colby as to why, why those songs didn't end up on there. Yeah, that's an interesting factoid. Maybe we'll save that part for the Patreon, but anyway... So okay, so, the so I got the tracklist. Yeah, I got the Antium Showdown Built to Last Shutdown. Thro- Did you say Showdown? Yeah. <laughs> Shut down. Shut down. Okay. Yeah, another victim. Yeah, they were sick. Um, Throwdown was on there. Brothers Keeper was on there. Rely was on there. Eighteen Visions. I love that Eighteen uh, Visions track and that Race Trader track. Or fucking the Race Trader track is fantastic. Sick. I remember seeing them at. Uh, at the Cocodry, and they, they put on a great show. Oh, really? I saw them at the Grange the, uh, with Up in Arms and Barrett. It was like 15 kids paid, but it was a sick show. Um, okay. Yeah, and then Sworn Vengeance, like we were talking, the only band um, that's on both. Burden. Burden, Show of Hands, and Trial. So when you said Champion, I think you were thinking Burden. Uh, yeah, and and then Show of Hands. They were a SoCal band, right? Yes, and then yeah, trial was dudes from Champion, so that might have been the confusion. So anyway, so so apologies for the mix up there, but yeah, I mean, no that worries. Was, that was a. You got a favorite, a uh, favorite or standout songs from that comp? So the most standout song for me for that whole comp, honestly, was the Queer track. Yeah, it's um, so good. I love yeah, the I, mean, I love that, the Above This World. Um, I mean, they redid this song, uh, for the LP that's on Thorpe, which. Super sick LP, or actually, it wasn't an LP. It never actually came out on vinyl, so technically, just no. A it, was CD. An, it was an EP CD. Really? I think it's longer than twenty three minutes. There's like sixteen songs on there. Pretty sure it counts okay. as a full length. Anyway, we're getting we're getting nerdy. We're getting into the uh, into the weeds here. <laughs> anyway, but yeah, uh, that adamant that version virus um of that adamantium song like it ended up on the whatever the second the final adamantium record is i don't like that version as much this one is so much better yeah that's a great track and like you said that 18 visions track i mean yeah the psychotic thought that saint gave jesus what a fucking song title it's like i don't know if this is hardcore but this is fucking sick dude it was such a good song 18 Visions back. I don't give a fuck what anybody says. I'm from California. 18 Visions was the shit back in the day. Lifeless. Yeah. Uh, Yesterday is Time Killed. Um, What's the first one? The black and gold one. 
Yeah, Yesterday's Time Killed. That one's great. And even until the ink runs out was sick too. But 18 Visions was sick. I mean, especially before they got really deep into the fashion. But I don't even mind some of the later stuff, but whatever. We're gonna <laughs> we'll cut that you know, tangent I, off briefly. But uh yeah, go ahead. I, I don't care how they look. They 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 that band was great. They killed it. They fucking killed it. Shout out 18 Visions. Um so yeah, so you were saying that that was basically that was Pete transitioning from being in the Bay Area and then kind of moving out to Salt Lake, right? Yeah, it was around that time frame. It was either uh, right as it was coming out uh, or right after, because at the time uh, he was working with uh, Greg Hardcore, who ran the the HardcoreMusic.com website message board. And shout out Greg. He, that yeah. let's talk. Oh, hold on. Let's talk about that for a second. We can't just like glaze over that. The no, import- no. Okay. Because I honestly, I don't think I'll get Greg on here, but um, the importance of the message board at that time, I mean. We did not have social media, but we had hardcoremusic.com. Yeah. Uh, it, I just, aside from the list, we knew about shows and the going on because of that that message board on there. And people from all over the world met because of that message board. You know? Like yeah. People like... For us, it's kind of funny because it was like our friend, you know, from Berkeley just did this message board and it was kind of just like the local board. But for anybody that was searching hardcore music on the internet, well, first of all, if you searched keyword hardcore back then, half the, like if for me, I you know, being at school or something, cause I didn't, I don't know, I didn't even really have access to computers at home when I was growing up, you know? So if I was using computer, it was probably at school or at the library or something. And then they would have those like paternal, blocks you know yeah so it's like you couldn't even access just keyword hardcore you know because it's like well, yeah. they it thought would be you were like, looking for something else entirely. yeah they thought you were looking at porn so it's like you couldn't <laughs> even pull up the website on certain you know computers but yeah just being able to just know what was going on know about shows just kind of meet and talk to people you know and for us like i said it was just kind of like our local thing and then there would just be these kind of rant like who's that guy who's that guy but you know, it was people from other places. And um, I don't know, that website was just, it was a big deal in a time where people were just readily able to communicate with other people on well, the I other mean, side of the world, you know, or on the other side of the country or wherever, the other side of the state even. So, I mean, even, I mean, even just for, for me, what it did for our local scene is, I mean, you can't say it enough because we were accomplishing then what, what bands do on social media nowadays is, is we knew, we knew of new bands that were getting together. We knew of new bands playing obscure shows and weird venues in strange towns because of that message board. And we traveled to shows because of that message board. It didn't matter where it was. I mean, the same group of people, you know, we all saw the same faces because we were connected by that message board and it just, helps really glue the scene together so i mean we cannot understate i mean we cannot overstate enough just the importance of what he did with that website absolutely so shout out greg and thank you for putting yeah, that time you, in um and you were saying he was kind of handling some of the art stuff 
Yeah, he was uh, he was handling the layout for the Straight Edge Rise Rise of the New Era comp, and that's when he started to uh, get involved in Breakout Records. Is his efforts to do the layouts. Uh, so he did the layout for the Straight Edge Rise of the New Era. Uh, you know, forgive me if I'm wrong on this, um, but I believe he played a, a part in the Second Coming. Uh, layout and then he also did the layout for the the low life nowhere bound album i think joey uh did the second coming stuff but i i'm not okay, positive so. but yeah i'm pretty sure so, like joey I said, did forgive me if stuff. i was wrong because i my hands weren't weren't on that release. that was <laughs> that, that was, was that Keaton was Colby project. Yeah, yeah that was their department okay so okay so that was my next question actually so um there's well there's two things so we never officially figured out what breakout number five was, unfortunately. So, and that is, that's still up for debate, but I think it was second coming. I think you were right on that because you and I were no, 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 debating. No, no. I got it right here. I'm pulling it up. Um, second coming is breakout number six. So I'm going to hit you with something else. So I always heard a rumor that forced life was going to do a record on breakout. Do you know what was up with that? I know that there was talk of it and I know that there was some consideration for it. Uh, but I don't really want to speak to the reasons why or why not that didn't happen. Okay. Um, that's fine. That's... Well, I could just say that, uh, that's a rumor that I've heard and that's a recording that I've heard and it exists. Yes, so, it does exist. Um, but you you can't you can't say for sure whether or not that was going to be breakout number five. I cannot say for sure, no, because that is I mean that's I've, between I've whoever heard. and whoever. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, I'll just say real quick, Force Life was dope. Um, were you yes. a fan of that band? I was absolutely a fan of that band. There was not a single band that was all involved in that California hardcore comp that I didn't like. Yeah, they were uh, they were and especially back then, they were one of the heavier bands on that comp. I'd say yeah, them and they were. probably swore or I guess at the time downshift, but downshift soon to you know, formally downshift. Like Forced Life was like the San Diego hate breed. You know what I mean? It's like or to us, you know. So shout out yeah. Forced Life. Shout out Matt from Forced Life. Um Yeah. Uh let's see. So okay, so skipping past that. Number six, Second Coming. You didn't have any involvement in that record, you said? No, I did not have any involvement in that record. Um, Can we offer up some uh, some information on it, though? Because we can't... Shout out Joey and Don and those guys. We cannot understate how important Second Coming is, was, forever, will be to Barry Hardcore. They were doing it at- when nobody else was there. Those guys were there from the beginning with... You know, uh, Breakaway, Rabbit Lassie. Um, I mean, yeah, like there is no barrier hardcore without those guys. So shout no, out to I mean, them. They, they were the ones doing it originally. And honestly, I think it was a disservice that that was such a late release for that band because um, it needed to happen. Um, hopefully, I mean, I'll were, get, they, hopefully I'll get, sorry to cut you off, but hopefully I'll get Joey on here one of these days and we can get the story uh, from the horse's mouth. But such an amazing band, but yeah, it was really unfortunate that um, they didn't have a full length release till basically the end of the band. 
you know, and um, it definitely did not get the attention or credit that it really deserved. Um, it'd be really awesome to hear like a remastered version of that album, I think, you know, but uh, yeah, and I would agree with you there. And I just think that the timing was was kind of unfortunate because uh, Colby was kind of getting pulled in different directions. Pete was getting pulled pulled in different directions. And I mean, I think because of it, the, the album didn't get the, the push that it probably deserved. And I can't speak to that, but that's kind of the sense of what I saw going on at the time. Yeah. Well, like I said, it's unfortunate, but regardless, um, what an amazing band, amazing shows, great dudes. Um, shout out second coming. I, I, I can't say enough good things about them. So if anybody has a chance to check it out, the name of that album is in denial of our impermanence. Uh, that one's always been kind of a tongue twister for me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, I mean, that's, but Joey, I, I, Oh, go ahead. I, I was talking with somebody about that album the other day and we were, we were trying to remember the word impermanence and puritans. It, it's, it gets you twisted up there. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Joey was an amazing artist and he did some killer artwork for that record. I'm 99% sure it was him. He was also responsible for a lot of like really sick, full color, glossy flyers at that time. You remember that? Yeah, yeah, I do remember. Joey's he, flyers he did were a dope. lot of great flyers. Yeah, some of my I mean, favorites. You knew they were a Joey flyer. Definitely, you got it. It was like a mini poster. You know, it was like full gloss, full color, like just sick. So yeah, shout out Joey and those dudes. Um, can't say enough good things about Second Coming. So many shows, like. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, told you so is like, told you so goes around in my head. Uh, no, <laughs> it's literally like, it's just, it's all kind of like flooding back to me now that I'm thinking about it. But okay. So well, after, what, go ahead. what I remember so much about second coming is when I saw them on flyers, like you're saying they were doing it before there was Bay area hardcore. I mean, you would see bills where, where they were the only hardcore band on the bill and they didn't fit, but they were, they were out there doing it. I mean, literally the first issue of Breakout Fanzine, they're in it and Joey's on the cover. Like Second Coming formed like 92, three. I mean, I don't even want to say too much because I might be wrong, but Joey, if you're listening, just please come on the show. (laughs) I really want to talk to you about this shit. Um, But yeah, I mean, that dude still skates, like whatever. And then what, what year did, um, what year did, Rabbit Lassie form like 86, 87. I don't know. I mean, that's, that's a good you're question. talking yeah. about, like I said, these are like the roots of the tree of Barry Harcourt. So without them, there is no us. So whatever, everybody do yourselves a favor and go check out uh, second coming. They also have a really six, seven inch too, which was not a breakout release, but I'll just plug it. It's called wake. It was on thick crust records. So that one came out in 97 and then you guys dropped the CD in 99. And it looks like after that we did, um, yeah, we want to talk about Lazarus project. So that's a salt Lake band. So Pete must've been out there at that point, right? Yeah. Pete was out there by 2000. Uh, so he was, he kind of had the pulse on, on who that band was. Um, and when he, cause that's the only that- non barrier release on the label is that record 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, every other band other than the, the straight edge comp obviously was, was Bay area tied. And that's, that's because that he had the pulse on Salt Lake city at that time. Cause that's where he was living. And, uh, I mean, that's, that's a great record too. I mean, it's just so different from everything else that was on the label. Definitely. I uh, mean, I'd say that's that one. That's kind of like the left field record that you guys did. I'd say. Cause it's kind of like, it's a metalcore record, you know? It is, but it's, it's a really kind of, it's not your typical metalcore. I mean, it's really hard to describe, but the kind of hardcore that was coming out of Salt Lake city is something that I haven't really heard very much in other parts of the country. I mean, Salt Lake city, hardcore bands sound like Salt Lake city, hardcore bands. I mean, you had Lazarus project, you had clear, uh, later on, you had bands like Cherim and Aftermath of the Trainwreck. And I just, there's just a certain metallic style that they had their hardcore. They're their own very, thing. very unique to their area. Yeah. They're, they're totally doing their own thing out there. Uh, were, was that a straight edge band? Do you know? So there were members in the band that, that, that it was a straight edge band at the time. But I know that that may or may not have led to part of their demise because uh, some members of that band joined a band later called beyond this flesh, which was, which was more of kind of like uh, an at the gates unearth style hardcore band, but they weren't straight edge uh, by the time they were playing in that project. Gotcha. Okay. So then after um after Lazarus you guys would have done that package and distribution uh thing with Sworn Vengeance for Domination, right? Correct, yeah. That uh, was that was before Nowhere Bound, right? Yes, that was So that Nowhere was 2000. Was that was release, summer yeah. 2000 or maybe I'd say spring summer 2000 when Sworn Vengeance dropped that one. But uh you want to talk about that record? Domination I absolutely want to talk about that record because oh, we already Vengeance, we already kind of touched on the weapon show. So so whoever's listening, this is the era of that. Like it was that version of Sworn Vengeance, you know. So these were the songs that they were playing uh when those shows were happening. And that was their sound. Like we kind of talked about how Downshift had kind of started maybe I don't know, they were just kind of a rudimentary, kind of like chuggy hardcore band you know like their songs weren't too complex they were good you know they were cool but sworn vengeance like had songs you know and those dudes could play like everybody in sworn vengeance was a good musician you know yeah and by the time when they were still downshift when they recorded hammer they did not sound like downshift anymore with hammer that sounds a lot different from the stuff that they were doing. I mean, they were moving in that direction when that song came out. Yeah. And that's like a really, that's kept moving. That's like a really simple song. And to whoever hasn't heard that song, that's basically like the barrier version of firestorm. Like, (laughs) I don't know how else to explain it. Like that song would come on at Like, I mean, they played like every show and that song was like, you know, that was like the signal to the whole room to go off. Oh yeah. I I mean, mean, you start hearing that breakdown and that little guitar pick at the beginning. I mean, you just, you, you, you just start dancing. Like hard. even if you didn't dance for any other song for the whole show, you were going to dance for hammer. Like, and that if was you didn't pretty much dance, like the one. you piled on to sing along. Yeah, pretty much. 
So yeah, Swarm Vengeance shows were awesome. And I mean, Grange Hall was pretty much their home base. A lot of those dudes were from that area. And you were the guy booking a lot of those shows. So I mean, that that's all directly connected back to that time and to you guys, you know, so. Um, and this is well before they, they kind of went into that Viking metal territory, you know? Yeah. I mean, later on they started doing a little bit more technical, uh, sounding stuff. I mean, that album, uh, the outstretched arms of damnation, which a fantastic recording. It's a shame that it never, it never reached distribution, but I mean, when they came out with domination, I mean, when you heard it, I mean, it, you heard something amazing. Their prior release, Abaddon, uh, there were some great tracks on it, but I don't think the, the production recording, was a little thin. Yeah. Yeah. It didn't do them justice. It was cool for the time. You know, I think they probably did that. I think Abaddon was at, um, with Matt Eriks. That's the guy who did Alone and Endless Pain and a lot of those. He was doing a lot of like NorCal and SAC bands at that time, you know? Yeah, but that was that was still earlier on too. So like I mean to be fair, um, like like shout out that shout out Matt Eric's, but um I don't think any of his recordings were as good or as intense as that Hood's Alone record. Um I mean Endless Pain sounds great too, but I think Alone is just especially that's like the one, you know? And uh I mean it's it's a classic. I mean it's it's a it's a great representation. Like I already, of, of I already said it yeah. before. Like I wish all the hoods records sounded like that. Like I wish every single hoods record sounded like that, you know? Oh, absolutely. I mean, shout out just to Mike my, Hood and yeah, everything that he's for done real shout out Mikey. But, um, that dude's like our hardcore uncle. <laughs> that, that stuff was, was, was the stuff that, that got me the most. I mean, that album, that one EP, I mean, man, when they, you know, once again, 98 track. I mean, it was. Yeah, that, that the whole room would go oh. off. No, no, no doubt about it. But yeah, the, the domination release, I mean, just the March of the dead instrumental from the very beginning. I mean, it just, you knew you were going to look, listen to something that was just going to be hard and, and just get you pumped for the whole album. I mean, there oh, was for not sure. a track on there. You wanted to just gloss over. And I remember, um, as far as like marketing was concerned, like Ryan was really into building like elaborate web pages and stuff back then with like, like flash was like a new thing. And like, I remember they had like the intro, um, for the album, like up on the webpage and it was like for the time, I mean like 99, 2000, it was like kind of a complicated webpage, you know what I mean? And, uh, oh yeah, absolutely. It was like, it was like a, it was like a teaser, you know what I mean? To the album, it was up there for like a couple months and we all knew like, dude, this shit is going to be hard as fuck. You know, like we were, we were looking for it, you know, we're all like excited and like, we're ready. You know, we'd been hearing the songs live for, I mean, in some cases like a year or more, depending on the song, you know, like we'd been going crazy at, at all the weapon shows, hitting each other with like nunchucks and plastic swords and whatever else you know and like we'd finally just have the physical copy you know so that was a great record i mean we would see them sometimes multiple times in a month and oh for sure i mean they, like every weekend you know it was like them and hoods and all bets off were like you know they were really 
super active at that time. And that was the time, you know, transitioning like the low life that was super active at that time as well. You know, so um, I know you had booked them. You said the first time was 97, right? Yeah. Yeah, but it was uh, kind of on more of a random kind of just mixed like punk bill. Correct. Yeah. I mean, I didn't really have a lot of, uh, I didn't have my, my feet in the water of hardcore at all yet. Um, I knew the ZBS guys, uh, at the time, which was an, which was another band from Fremont that was, mm-hmm. uh, really good. And they, they were a hardcore band, but they were, you know, they were kind of more affiliated with the punk scene and doing punk shows. And at least in the beginning, low life was kind of in that vein as well. Uh, and I don't recall how I got in touch with them, but yeah, I got them on, on a show that was a uh, punk bill and it was a press logic and snapper was supposed to play. So it was just a uh, good old boys played that show as well. So it was just all just straight Bay area p- punk rock bands. And then low life was on that bill. What would you say was the turning point for low life when they kind of actually started to be accepted and kind of really start to, you know, they started, I'm not going to say they were a lazy band. That sounds really disrespectful, but there was a couple of years in there when low life started where they, they weren't really doing a whole lot. Cause I think technically low life started 96, right? Yeah. So they were, they were pretty early on, but they weren't, uh, and- they weren't really playing shows on the regular. I'd say by 99, like they were pretty much a staple on a lot of shows. And those dudes that kind of started to, to grind and you know they were one of the bands that we were really into but i think for the first couple of years around they were around they were just kind of like maybe finding their footing you know i think so too and honestly i mean it would be hard to say pinpoint a time that that they really came to their own because I, for me they kind of dropped off my radar after that show i think for, and then for i me, saw them again and it just this is not the same band i booked at the grange well, for me, it was that pressure point show that we talked about. Like that was the show that I was like, "Holy shit, low life is like kind of tight," <laughs> you know? Like I don't know. And, that, and see, that's where that first sworn vengeance weapon show, that November '99 show. Yeah. Like yeah, I mean, in my memory, that was, and then and then they played Gilman about a month later, and then that show was pretty good too. Okay, so Low Life Nowhere Bound comes out, I think we decided uh, spring 2001. Does that sound roughly more or less right? That, that sounds pretty close to, to the time frame. And then that would have been the final release on Breakout Records, right? Yeah, that was the last release on Breakout. And you know, Pete was getting involved in other things in Salt Lake city. Uh, we had actually started another side project where we were doing this, this parody poetry magazine together. Um, Colby was, what was that called? What, this is the first time hearing of it. Oh, Clarence von Lippkenstein, uh, intellectual liverwurst selected works. We basically wrote, <laughs> that's a mouthful. Yeah. <laughs> we created this fictitious character named Clarence von Lipkenstein and wrote just really, really bad shitty poetry. And it was just this big um, parody that we put together. Um, And, uh, you know, we had some, 
we had some funny stuff. We did it. We did a little bit of a live show with it, but Pete was kind of moving away from hardcore at that time. He was getting more interested in, uh, in artistic endeavors, you know, painting, writing, things like that. Uh, Colby was, uh, getting involved in, in the military and I was just kind of having my own troubles in my personal life. So, I mean, I was kind of stepping away from the scene for a little bit, trying to figure my life out. And would, so, that, would that have been around the time that you decided to head out to Salt Lake yourself? That would have been around the time that I decided to head out to Salt Lake myself. Uh, Pete needed a roommate and I, I needed to change a scenery and just kind of get, get, get away from, from things and get my head straight because at the time, uh, my head was just so into the music and into the scene and that was my life, but I was 21 years old and I started to need to figure out which direction I needed to go in. And I was kind of struggling with that. So I decided the best thing for myself was just to step away, go somewhere where I didn't know anybody and, and just kind of, uh, figure life out. So I ended up stepping away from, from the Bay, I believe. 2002 is when I would have left for Salt Lake City, late 2002, early 2003. And I just took an Amtrak train out there and moved in with Pete. Uh, and unfortunately, that was just kind of the end of an era. Uh, the breakout, or sorry, the low life record uh, was the last thing we did. And a lot of things went wrong and it didn't get the intention and the, and the uh, push that some of the other albums did and and it was just it ended that was the end of a story yeah which is really kind of kind of sad to just kind of think about and reminisce on because everything that breakout did was was just so legendary but i mean i guess that's that's just kind of growing up sometimes yeah. people go different directions things change unfortunately nothing lasts forever nothing gold can stay nope. so you guys were all just kind of transitioning into different things and i mean yeah, Colby would have been in the military at that time. 9-11, you know, would have happened shortly, you know, or in that window. And then obviously the uh, the invasion and everything. And then you guys are out in Salt Lake and you ended up getting into the trades. And um, yeah, everybody just kind of went in their, their different directions. So uh, what were you, what was... Um, being in Salt Lake, were you still finding yourself invo involved in the hardcore scene or were you still going to shows? Were you still into music or were you just kind of like starting to fall back and just kind of getting some more, dare I say, uh, adult life? Well, that was the intent was to go out there and get more involved in the adult life. Um, but that was kind of a, a sputter, stop and sputter and go thing. But I sought out the music scene. Um, I started going to shows out there. I still had connections to bands in the Bay area. So I started booking shows out in, in Salt Lake city and bringing some of the bands from the Bay to play out there. So I ended up doing a few shows there. And what was interesting, uh, one of the early shows that I did is I had Antagony play out there with all shall perish. And like we talked about earlier, the Salt Lake hardcore scene um, just always kind of had a more metallic sound. And I remember seeing the hardcore kids just dancing their asses off to Antagony. And I had never seen that in the Bay because it was just so different from what 
I think Bay kids would have considered hardcore. And to see that happening in Salt Lake City was just a really cool experience. Yeah, that's rad. They're actually well received. Um, I mean, to be fair, you know, Antagony, they did have their following in the Bay Area, you know, and we we both agree that they were a dope band, but I just don't know if the hardcore kids in the Bay Area were uh, the most receptive audience <laughs> to Antagony at that time. So who else yeah. who else did you bring out to Salt Lake? Um just real quick. We don't have to go into every single show, but uh what other bands did you um did you bring from the bay uh through Salt Lake? So Ultra Parish, Antagony, uh I brought a press logic out there before um Something Must Die, which was another band that was kind of overlooked by the Bay Area hardcore scene, but was well received in Salt Lake City. Two forty. Uh, did they ever make it out? No, there? no. Two forty never made it out there. Unfortunately, yeah, I, didn't think I would so. have loved to bring them out there. What about Animos- then, animosity? So animosity had played out in Salt Lake City, but I I had not booked them at that time. Gotcha. Um, I uh, and then I hooked up with this uh, guy from a band out there, Bring It Down. Rob, the lead singer, Bring, Bring It Down. Shout out to him, great guy. Uh, we started doing some shows together and. Uh, one of one of the highlights out there is we brought Outbreak out when they were touring, and that was a fantastic show to see. Oh, um, that's cool. Oh, wait. So, um, there's actually two outbreaks. So you're talking about the Bridge Nine outbreak, right? The Bridge Nine outbreak, okay. correct? Yeah. Cool. Cool. Because um, there so, there was a very short lived Barrier outbreak. Um, yeah. I'm just... So that's it, it. Just threw me for a second when you said outbreak. So anyway, go ahead. Um, and then, you know, I did a lot of, uh, a lot of local shows out there too, with some of the local bands. And I tried to book shows at first, the same way I did in the Bay, where you would put punk rock and hardcore bands together. Um, but that didn't fly the same in Salt Lake city. I mean, the, the hardcore shows were hardcore shows and the punk shows were punk shows. And a lot of times you put punk and hardcore bands together. Neither one of them wanted to show up to the show and deal with each other. And if they did, they would stand outside the venue for the other band's set, come in for the the band they came to see and leave. So you didn't really get the mixed crowds there. And that was that was kind of a disappointing learning experience. Uh that's unfortunate. Um regarding um regarding some of the violence in Salt Lake, is from your experience, did it live up I don't say did it live up to the hype, but um there have been stories and things that have been told. And without getting into detail, one of the things that was always emphasized in the late 90s and early 2000s is that Salt Lake had a very violent scene. Uh, so in your perspective, was it was it bad out there? Like, did you, did it feel like, did it feel like something you still wanted to be? Now that you're kind of getting older and you're kind of like, you know, I need to, you know, probably thinking like I'm, I should get a, get a job. I should get a career. I should do this, go back to school, like whatever. Um, was it, did it feel like it was kind of taking you in that other direction? Like, did it feel like, do you know what I'm saying? You following me? Yeah, you know, it was, it was definitely kind of, did it feel uh, like a regression, like going, it did. like moving it did. away to go to a place that, that you were hoping to kind of turn things around and get your, I don't want to say get your life together. You're a young man kind of figuring things out. It's not like your life's falling apart, but just get on a track, you know, and then you find yourself in a place that's notorious 
for for violence at shows and you know straight edge uh hardline stuff and whatever else and uh did you find yourself getting sucked into any of that i absolutely did and, and your your regression was hit hit the nose right on the head i mean the nail right on the head um i go out there to try and figure things out i end up getting in more trouble living in salt lake city uh involving myself in that scene and uh the people i was hanging out with uh as far as the violence is concerned i mean it absolutely was a violent scene i mean there was always a fight going on because uh, to be however, fair at that time the the barrier was was a pretty it was pretty rough scene as well you know in that late 90s early 2000s era but would you say salt lake was even worse i wouldn't say it was worse but there was definitely there was more happening on a regular basis than i had seen at least in the bay area prior to me leaving at that time um i mean i wouldn't say that it was more brutal or it was more violent but there was more violence that was occurring i mean every single show there was a fight especially the bigger shows uh i remember headbangers ball tour had uh, come through there that had who was on that lamb of god uh god forbid trying to think of who else was there but i know those two bands were on there and it was just constant fight after fight uh you know bleeding through came through there and it was just constantly a fight after fight but the thing is 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 they got a bad rap as far as saying oh if you're not straight edge you know they're gonna beat you up they're gonna do this and that uh because you've never been straight edge right no i have never been straight edge and you were embraced in salt lake correct i i was i mean they were they were a little skeptical of me at at first when i first started coming around um, cause I'm dealing with, uh, with a scene of people that, you know, without going into the detail of the past, but I mean, they, they ended up on America's most wanted for some of the stuff that was going on. So they were dealing with law enforcement infiltration. So they didn't really trust people who just started coming around, but, you know, I just treated them with respect and they treated me with respect, even if there was kind of a cautiousness about it. We didn't have any problems and I was never straight edge and most of them knew it. And even when they found out that I wasn't, there was a little bit of disappointment, but it wasn't like, we're going to fuck you up now. Yeah. And you're still, you're still friends with a lot of those guys to this day. Yeah. Uh, one of my best friends, Matt Bruce, shout out Matt Bruce. He lives down in uh, Southern California. Now um, I was walking to, it wasn't even a hardcore show. It was a bouncing souls and tsunami show. And I was just walking Wait, down. Tsunami down or tsunami the, bomb? Tsunami bomb. Thank you. Yeah, it's big difference. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, not not the not the shout out tsunami, but but not the the hardcore band tsunami. Yeah, that's um, funny. Yeah, so tsunami bomb and bouncing souls, and I'm just walking down the street, and he just walks up to me, introduces himself, and he was uh, he was the first friend that I made in that town, and we were friends since. Um, I ended up hanging out with a lot of vegan kids and a lot of sharps because they weren't straight edge, um, but they all loved hardcore music. So, I mean, we would go to hardcore shows together and none of us were straight edge. And I mean, we all hung out at the shows and never had problems. But yeah, to answer your question, I mean, there was a lot of shit that was going on on a regular basis. And 
there was definitely some truth to the reputation that they were getting, but not in the context that they were just so hard line that they were going to fuck anybody up. Who's not straight edge. Gotcha. And how long did you uh, stay in Salt Lake for? Man, I ended up in Salt Lake for, for 15 years. Um, I started an apprenticeship out there uh, shortly after uh, there was, there was an incident that we got into at a die cast and hoods show that ended up getting put on the news. And that was just kind of an eye opener for me that I really need to just calm the fuck down and, and really do what I set out to do. So I ended up, uh, I started working at a steel shop. I stepped away from, from the scene for a long time. And then I ended up getting, uh, brought into the iron workers apprentice apprenticeship. And they basically called me on a Thursday and said, you want to be in the union, uh, head up to Gillette, Wyoming, be there by Monday. And Gillette, Wyoming from Salt Lake city is about a six hour drive. Cause it's in the far Northeastern corner of the state. So just like that overnight, I kind of had to, to step away from, from the music scene that I loved and just focus on my work and go up to Wyoming. Wow. And, uh, you, you managed to, you managed to be there for how long? So that run, I was there for, for about eight or nine months. And then I ended up going back to Salt Lake city for some other projects in town. But the way the apprenticeship had worked is we were working 10 hour days in the field and I had to go to apprentice class three nights a week after work and go to weld school on Saturday morning. So, I mean, that was, that was my entire life. You know, there wasn't much time for anything else. Yeah. And, um, so you said you've been doing, you've been at that for 15 years. So I was an iron worker for, I, I lived in Salt Lake for about 15 years. I was an iron worker for 12. Uh, unfortunately, my iron worker career uh, took a turn when I suffered a really traumatic accident. I got. Yeah, you kind of touched on it at the beginning of the episode, um, but you want to tell the full length version or is that something you want to leave alone? Yeah. So, I mean, I was, I was shoveling snow off the steel that I was working on and the corrugated steel for anybody who doesn't know, I mean, that is slick stuff. And my, my foot just slipped and I fell on my ass and the pry bar that was in my tool belt, uh, jammed, um, the pointy end jammed through the steel and the spoon end, the thick end, uh, jammed through the side of my ribs Jesus. and shot out my shoulder. Oh my gosh. And right or left side? Left side. Damn. You missed uh, your lung I'm, though? So I was lucky the way the, the way the flat end of Could have punctured my bar your lung. was facing. Yeah. If it was turned 180, they think it would have caught a rib shot into my cage and punctured a lung. But what it did was, is it rode my ribs on the outside and then just shot, shot straight out through my shoulder. Jesus. And, you know, I'm sitting on the ground thinking to myself, I fell on my ass. Why am I having a hard time breathing right now? And I try and get up and realize that I'm pinned and look over and see that I'm just shish kebobbed on this fucking bar. Jesus. 
So I lean over and rip that thing right out of me. Uh, it sounds crazy, but if you're ever in that situation, you don't think you just panic. Adrenaline is a motherfucker. You can do some wild things when you've got adrenaline going through. I've set bones and done other things. I mean, nothing like I, I haven't unimpaled myself yet. Uh, knock on wood, but yeah, I I totally get you. What I will say though, is I didn't feel it going in, but I sure as hell felt it coming out of me when I pulled it. Yeah. Um, and that was, that was a really hard thing to go through because I was already, I was already in a low point in my life. I, I had just, and how, how old were you at this point? That was, yeah, I would have been, uh, 33 at the time, six years ago. You're already a father at this point. Yeah, already a father. Actually, had just gone through through a divorce, and this happened three days after the divorce was finalized. Jeez. So, I mean, it was just it was a low point in my life, and you know, I kind of been I still listened to the the music that I was into, but I I had not been involved in in the scene for for a long time. Uh. So I just, I I was going through a lot of shit. I was hurting emotionally and physically. And, you know, unfortunately through that injury and through some of my other struggles, I mean, I ended up developing a pretty bad pill problem that, that I had to fight my way out of. Um, But I, I got through it and what kind of helped get me through it was, reconnecting with with some of my my old friends from my punk rock days from from my hardcore days i mean people who had gone through through similar shit and my connection to the scene was a big part in in helping me figure that out and and to walk through that yeah those are the people that were there that were there for you when you really needed it yeah that's amazing. So, I mean, I'm, it's, it's, uh, obviously it's unfortunate that you had to go through some of that stuff and I'm sorry. Um, but you know, uh, we're, it's, we're still, you and I, you know, we've known each other. I mean, I guess what peripherally at least for close to 25 years. Yeah, I, I would say at least since we're like yeah, since we're like fifteen years old, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and I'm thirty nine, so close to twenty five years. Yeah. I mean, do the math, twenty four at least. Unfortunately, uh, yeah, a lot of us have gone through some some really intense uh, personal obstacles and unfortunate situations, and I'm not going to say anything more than that, um, but. <laughs> I think most of us can agree, those of us that are still here, those of us that are still in love with this thing, you know, um, that these people, that they're the ones that were there for us when we needed them, you know? So it's unfortunate that those things happen, but at least you have the blessing of punk rock and hardcore to to take your back when the shit goes bad, you know? Well, I mean, that's, we have friendships that 
other people in, in the normal world never get. You know, people that we can reach out to, you know, haven't spoken to for years and there's still love there like family and down to take the shirt off their back to help somebody out. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's really like some secret handshake, like stone cutters type shit. You know, absolutely. it really is <laughs> like we keep, you we know, keep Steve Gutenberg in the movies. <laughs> well, I mean, just like still as a middle-aged man, you, you know, you see someone walking down the street with a hardcore shirt shirt and you kind of give them the nod and it's like, okay, we got something in common. I don't know who you are. Yeah. But I mean, um, there, there's something like, there's something there. It's like, we look at the world, this is, you know, similarly, we have similar experiences and background and upbringing and just that sense of uh, feeling alienation and wanting to belong, having that anger, questioning things, questioning politics, uh, maybe questioning some social norms or constructs, you know, and just wanting to express and vent those things that are inside us and still connect to other people, you know? And yeah. hardcore and punk rock is what allows us and enables to do that. And some of us would it. I mean, you know, we've 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 mentioned some names on this episode that, you know, people that unfortunately are no longer with us that we had a lot of love for, formative people. Um and yeah, maybe some of them were battling whatever they were battling, you know what I mean? And those of us that are here, you know, we're lucky we're lucky to have made it and we're lucky to have each other and we're lucky to have this thing for when life gets really hard. Cause it does, you know, it really does. And hardcore, yeah. hardcore is unconditional. You know, that's, that's a love that has your back no matter what, you know, as cheesy as that sounds, but some of the best people and the worst people on this fucking planet earth I've met because of this scene, you know, and yeah. the good ones. Like, I mean, all, there's nobody else I'd rather go to war with. You know what I'm saying? There's nobody else I'd rather have at my side. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, just, we, we all came to this music for, for more than just a love of music. I mean, people can like music for a lot of different reasons, but I think the core of any of us coming to hardcore and punk rock is the fact that we didn't feel like that we fit in with the rest of the world and we were angry. And had we not had the music, we probably would have found even less healthier places to put that anger and frustration so for a lot of it the, the music saves our fucking lives i mean that's not an understatement that's not cliche i mean that's reality i mean for me i felt like i had to step away for a while because it was getting me into trouble um but come full circle it was the connections that i made and the friendships that i made in that music scene and the love of that music that got me through hard times yeah, um, it kept you afloat when you to bring really me back it. to myself. Yeah. So it just, it came back to me and, and was there when I needed it years later. Yeah. That's amazing. Um, part of me almost wants to just end it on that note because that's, uh, it's perfect. But, um, I don't know. You want to transition into talking about, uh, some of the things that you do to stay sane? Like yeah, some of your I hobbies mean, as far as like, like you're into art, you, you box, you know, you're into some outdoor stuff. Like how do you like as a 40 year old dude 
who's kind of, you know, been around, you've got two kids, you're a blue collar guy. Um, you know, you've been fucking impaled. <laughs> Life gets crazy. Like, what do you do to stay sane? Like, um, how do you, how do you keep that balance? It, it, honestly, it's not about balance. It's about staying as busy as possible. And if I stay still, you know, it, it's kind of hard physically and emotionally. Like my body is fucking broken down for what I did for a living. I mean, I have all sorts of joint problems and I just feel like I have to move nonstop. So, uh, I'm on a competitive boxing team out here in Portland. Now I go mountain bike riding and it's just kind of for my own sanity. I, I'll sit there and I'll draw a quick shout out to my, my Instagram page illustrations by Madamus. I put all my drawings up there. Yeah. Go check um, that out. But everything that I do, I'm listening to hardcore music when I'm doing these things. Like I'm out of my bike and I'm listening to hardcore. I'm, uh, I'm drawing and I got my earbuds on and I'm listening to hardcore. You know, when I'm at the boxing gym, I got my earbuds on and hitting the bag, listening to it. And what's it your just, favorite, uh, what's your favorite gym jams for uh, hitting the bag? What, what are you listening to? Okay. So one of my favorites, like what's, what's, what gets you fired up? Let's talk about it. Let's talk about some bands real quick. So I got two songs right now that are really firing me up and that's, uh, that's the section hate song. Welcome to the nightmare. Oh, that's a good one. And, uh, I was actually that's a great song. I actually uh, fell asleep listening to that record. <laughs> like literally physically fell asleep with that record on pretty funny. It was looping, but yeah, that, that one's a banger. That's definitely one of my favorite releases uh, of the summer for sure. Yeah. And, and you know what, it just, it really makes it feel like there's a resurgence of hardcore. I mean, I love what's going on. Yeah. Like hardcore too. That band, I mean, a lot of, a lot of weak ass, shitty, soft cupcake, fucking quote unquote beat down bands love to say that, Oh, sounds like cold as life or whatever. Yeah. The fuck. Right. Dude. Section hate actually really reminds me of cold as life. Like in a legit way, in a good way, yeah. that band is the real deal. Like I fuck with Section Eight. Shout out Mexi. Um, yeah. So, who else, man? What else are you fucking with when you when you need to get fired up when you when you're uh, yeah when, uh, you, when you're working dr- out? Drain uh, their track Army of One. Oh, that that's a great one. Yeah. That's a um, that's I mean. I have a hard time saying they're a Bay band. I think they're a Santa Cruz band. So you're right. <laughs> being from, being from therapy. the East Bay, that's uh, we're getting into gray area here. I'm sure anybody outside of the Bay area would be like, yeah, they're a Bay area band and no disrespect to the drain guys, by the way, but I'm from the East Bay. You guys are from Santa Cruz. <laughs> well, I mean, when we grew up, good Santa band, Cruz was a good whole band. World, though. Exactly. So, I mean, Exactly. Santa Cruz. That's all there is to it. It's no disrespect whatsoever. Santa Cruz is its own thing. I used to live there for eight years. Nothing but love and respect to Santa Cruz. Okay. But it's great town, but it's its its own own thing. It's its own thing. So that's all. That's all I'm saying. Uh, As far as the younger batch of. uh, Okay. Here's a hypothetical question for you. If you guys today, this minute, were doing breakout number 10. Who's the Bay band that you'd want to put a record out for? Oh man. Like, like which band from the Bay? Um, 
And I guess maybe we should make an amendment that Gulch just announced that they're going to be breaking up. So RIP Gulch, uh, go check that out. Go check them out if yeah, you have a chance to see news. them. Yeah. Good band. Good band. Um, but yeah, as far as the younger crop of Bay bands, like, is there anybody from here that you 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 would really you could visualize them being on the label? You think they would fit? You think they have a good work ethic? Like a band that you fuck with and you and you you like what they're doing? So a, a band that's really impressed me uh, is uh, My Over Eyes. I mean, those guys those guys are good. You like My Over Eyes? I do. I right do. on. They're they're actually that's a San Jose band. Yeah. Anybody else? Which is getting in gray area, but still a Bay band. Yeah. I'm kind of, I, I kind of put them in that category too. Sorry. No disrespect, whatever disrespect, no disrespect, San Jose, take it how you take it, but that shit ain't the Bay. <laughs> but so, uh, I mean, if, if we that's had the, the South Bay, to... it's its own thing. That's Silicon Valley. <laughs> yeah. They didn't, San Jose didn't exist back then. Yeah. Whatever. Anyway, <laughs> next conversation, next, next topic. Um, but yeah, what do you, um, what do you think about bands like uh tsunami and uh hands of God? So I have not heard anything by, by hands of God. Uh, they're tsunami. Sick. They're sick. They've got to um, go ahead. Say what you're going to say. Tsunami. I really dig. And I am excited to see them at that powerhouse show. Oh, you're going to be down here for that. I am. I got my tickets for the Saturday show. I wish I got the Sunday show to see Gulch if I knew that was going to be one of their last shows, but it is what it is. Yeah, we'll definitely be seeing each other at that one. So uh, Hands of God had, has a record called Blueprint for Self-Destruction that actually, uh, yeah, Blueprint for Self-Destruction that came out a couple years ago. It's on uh, Flat Spot. I think it's on Flat Spot. Uh, that one's a banger. So I definitely recommend that one. As far as younger Bay bands doing their thing, uh, my personal favorites, if I'm voting for whatever to come out on Breakout in 2021, I'm going to say Gulch, Hands of God, Tsunami, um, No Right. There's somebody else I'm forgetting. Tsunami and Gulch would be great additions right there. Yeah, there's definitely, I'm definitely forgetting somebody else right now. But uh, yeah. Okay, so these days you're living in Portland, correct? Yep. Yeah, I live in Portland now. I love this town. And then you got you came to Portland from work for work, right? Yeah, my work sent me uh, there for what was supposed to be a three to six month project, and it uh, never ended. So you came to Portland after your accident, correct? Yeah, yeah. I uh, I had left the trade as as an iron worker, and I'd become. Uh, a safety manager, the old cliche that in the trades anyways, is that, you know, you become a safety guy by getting hurt. Well, I live that <laughs> cliche. Yeah. Sorry. I'm not laughing at you, but that's funny. Yeah. No, I, I laugh at it too. So laugh away. Yeah. So, and you've uh, been at that for how many years, four years now? So about three and a half years I've been up in Portland okay. and, uh, I wish I've gotten to, to get to know the town better, but unfortunately the world shut down. Uh, but there's some, there's some great stuff going on. There's a couple of good local hardcore bands ruined it. And, uh, crooked, really good bands. Uh, they had 
they had a band called Violent Traditions, which was kind of like uh, like an oi hardcore mix. They were really good. Unfortunately, they broke up. Um, the shows up here are are pretty solid, and you know, I gotta I gotta hand it to the way they deal with the scene up here. Uh, we talked a lot earlier about about the racism and the Nazis we had to deal with in the Bay, and that's something that they've had to deal with. Yeah. They were known for the nonstop out here. Yeah. yeah. And people have to put in work to kind of, kind of keep the scene clean from that. And, you know, shout out to them. And if anybody wants to kind of hear the history of that, there's this great podcast called it happened here. That kind of talks about all that history of the racism that was going on in the streets of Portland, Oregon, and the efforts that were made, uh, by by the scene, you know the punk rockers, the skinheads, the hardcore kids to to push them back out, and that's something they still struggle with today. Yeah, that's crazy. I mean, it's it's so insane to me that I mean it's fucking twenty twenty one. You know, like, yeah. But what's your favorite spot up there for shows? Uh, my favorite spot for shows actually got shut down. It was this place called cider riot. And unfortunately it was kind of, uh, a spot for a lot of problems. Um, but they had a lot of great shows there. Uh, there was another great spot called the twilight cafe that just always had local bands and all the touring bands that came through there. Uh, but unfortunately, um, that location at least didn't survive the pandemic and they're supposed to be reopening at a new spot, but their old spots gone. So, um, it's going to look completely different once, once things start opening back up. Uh, yeah. So Dante's much, is, so much know, stuff remains to be seen. Yeah. It's going to be a different world for everybody, but Dante's is kind of the heart of old town Portland and they've, they've been putting on shows for a long time and, uh, they're still going solid. Right on. Well, um, shit, man. I think this is probably, uh, this is probably getting to be a good point to wind it down. Is there anything else you want to touch on or any, any plugs or shout outs? Thank yous, anything to mention or anything that we should look out for anything you're going to be doing in the upcoming future you want to announce or, yeah, so uh, I'm going to start looking into booking shows again. I've always loved booking shows. Um, I mean, even with the zine and the label, shows was always my favorite thing to do. So hopefully I'll be able to start getting some bay bands up here, uh, you know, booking some local shows. So I'll start doing that again. Uh, Pete and I are actually going to be revisiting that Clarence von Lippenstein poet project I was telling you about. And we're going to, we're going to kind of create some YouTube videos and an Instagram page. Um, probably getting a voice actor to hire to, to read our shit. So that sounds so funny. Be on the lookout <laughs> for that. Uh, speaking of you and Pete, um, I'm just going to put you on the spot here. Can, can we be looking forward to or expecting, uh, any of the breakout releases to be on streaming at any point or getting reissued, getting remastered, anything like that? So, I mean, that's, I mean, it's a great night to ask that question. Cause like I said, I'm, I'm in Salt Lake tonight, just hanging out with old friends for the weekend and him and I caught up tonight and we were talking about, uh, releasing, uh, the projects we were involved in and get them streaming 
Uh, unfortunately, we've had a hard time getting a hold of Colby. He's kind of been MIA, and that's that's kind of strange, especially for Pete because Pete and Colby like go way way back, you know, high school all through on. They've just been the best friends, so they haven't been in contact. But it's something that we'd like to do. Um, but right now, what we're going to do is we're going to at least get the projects we were involved in and start to work on getting those streaming and hopefully we can get a hold of Colby and, uh, get the entire get the, catalog up, get the entire catalog up. What I would like to do. Cause there's is, already a couple of the titles are already up. Uh, hoods alone is on Spotify already. Domination is up already. Um, but I think those are the only two. There might be yeah, some stuff have, on Bandcamp, but nothing else is on Spotify. Yeah, we don't have, um, you know, and the other thing too is I would like to get the seven inch from One Scene Records. I would like to get on those on there. Definitely, um, definitely. The two songs on there, the Mark Kane, um, uh, the Sworn Vengeance songs. Yeah, they are on um, Sworn Vengeance recordings already, but they're, it's a different recording of the song. So I think people would appreciate being able to hear those and getting those all bets off tracks out there as well. Definitely. Well, definitely be um, looking forward to that. Um, you guys have a timeline or just, just working on it, chipping away, just chipping away for right now. These are conversations that just started happening over the past couple of weeks, but so stay tuned. There's more to come there. Well, right on. I'll definitely be looking forward to that. Um, everybody stay tuned for that one. So, um, yeah, man, I think we're kind of, a. I think we kind of covered a lot, so or at least for now. I mean, you're welcome to come back. Would you be down to come back again? Oh, absolutely, anytime. I've I mean, there, there's lots this. more I mean, to cover. There's some, dude. There's some specific. <laughs> you did some crazy shows, and we we talked about a couple of them. We talked about a couple Wild Grange Hall shows, but there was some bangers. There was some fucking. There was a lot of. There's a lot of beatdowns. There's a lot of fun shows, a lot of fights, a lot. There was strippers. There was fucking Nazi trash. There was everything in between the cops. Um, you got to come back and we got to cover some of the shit on the Patreon because I mean, we, we, we <laughs> there's so many gems. War stories just there's as so long many as we gems. About the music. Yeah, for real. I mean, like I said, I can't. <sighs> Thank you so much, man. Seriously, from the bottom of my heart, this episode was. And I told you this already. This doing this one was very near and dear to me. I'm not going to rank my episodes and say that this was my favorite, but um, this was an episode that meant so much to me. Being able to talk to you, we've known each other since we were really young. Maybe not super well, but we came from that same generation of kids from Contra Costa, just kind of finding. You know, we were punks finding hardcore. You know, we came from that kind of Green Day nirvana generation um into you know into grimple and press logic and into powerhouse and hoods and on and on and on and our lives where they went went where they went now we're both fathers you know and like we're both 40 years old and it's just life's a trip man but single-handedly you booked some of the greatest shows the greatest nights and memories in my mind you know from that time so from the bottom of my See, heart. And, and thank you for, for saying that. I mean, no, thank you for giving me those memories and thank you for coming on and, and talking and, and reminiscing with me. And, uh, you know, we were able to talk a little bit about Jody and just, you know, again, just a time that 
it was so formative and it meant so much. And there might be some people out there who listen to this episode and they're going to be either hyped because they got to hear about a side of the Bay that they weren't expecting to hear about, or maybe they're going to be disappointed because we didn't say ceremony or <laughs> trash talk or whatever till right now, you know, but the reality is, is this, this is the real story of the Bay and this is what and where we come from. This is what it was, you know, and, and without, without those Grange Hall shows and without, you know, without East Bay Menace and without Grimple and, you know, Ojo Rojo and, and El Dopa and all that stuff, that wouldn't have turned into, you know, us being into powerhouse and, and hoods and low life and sworn vengeance and everything that came after. And just, it was all preface to, to what, to what this is now and to where we are, you know? So yeah. none of, none yeah. of this would be if that didn't happen first, that was the foundation for all this. Neanderthal wouldn't exist. I wouldn't be a father. Like none of this would be, you know? So, yeah, like much love and thank you to you and to everybody, to Carlos, to Pete, to Colby, to everybody from that time. Shane, yeah, yet, sure. yet, if you guys are out there, what's up? Jesse, Scott, Sarah Trigueros, Brandon, everybody, everybody from back then. So much love to all you guys. Yeah, and, and we didn't even touch on the Hayward guys. I mean, they got their own stories. Right. So, yeah, I mean, there's... You, you got to come back, man. We're going to do it again. Yeah, anytime. I'd, I'd be more than happy to come back. So thank uh, thank you so much. Um, again, thank you for your contribution. Thanks for setting aside the time. Thanks for being my friend after all this time. Uh, I wish you safe travels back home. And I mean, I'm sure we'll be talking in, in the next couple of days, I'm sure. Yeah, you know, thank you. For, <laughs> we talk for all the time anyway. Oh, dude. We, don't, we do. No, don't even mention it. But uh yeah, seriously. The listeners out there just knew how many conversations we were having before we even got into this interview, and right. just how hyped we were just talking to each other before we even got into this. Oh well, there's so much more ground to cover too. There's so much more ground to cover. So if anybody, whoever enjoyed this episode, Matt is a good homie, and he will be coming back for Patreon stuff. So if you want to hear some crazy war stories from back when, or talking about what it was like to put out this record or that record or book this band or that band or whatever. We'll be talking about all that. So, um, so thank you, Matt. And, uh, yeah, we'll be talking soon. All right. So that was Matt Larson. I want to say thanks again to Matt for setting aside the time to come on and, um, just deep dive on, uh, so much formative stuff from my youth. It was really awesome to uh, tell the story of the East Bay, to talk about East Bay Menace, to talk about Breakout Records, to talk about the Grange Hall, talk about old friends like Jody, and uh, things and people and places that they just meant so much, and it was so formative, and I just wouldn't be the person that I am without that time and without those experiences and those people. So I want to say thank you to everybody for listening. This episode was very near and dear to my heart. So uh, <laughs> if you're disappointed that you didn't get to hear about, um, I don't know, whatever you thought Barry Hardcore was, sorry, but it is what it is. Um, thanks to everybody for supporting. Thanks to everybody for listening. Thanks to everybody for following on Instagram, at Neanderthal society be sure to check out the new breakout records instagram that's 
at Breakout Records Hardcore. Uh, stay tuned for our new website. That's neanthal-society.com. We got the Depop up. There's stuff on the way. And the Patreon is still on the way, so stay tuned for that. So I want to say thanks again, everybody. Stay tuned. We'll get a new episode going, coming back next week. Lots of stuff in the pipeline to look forward to. I'm not telling you guys anything. So (laughs) stay tuned. Uh, Much love. Take care. Hardcore Lives. Peace out. (laughs) 